Well, greetings, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tara and Rama's uh, True History in History of Mystera and Our Galactic Origins show on Saturday afternoon at BBS Radio. We're grateful that you join us here today, and Merry, Merry, Merry Christmas. It's a good day on the in the universe, and it's good to celebrate this sacred day. So I'm glad you're all with us, uh, and I'm just going to take a few minutes. Let's all take a few minutes and go into our heart space and set the tone for this afternoon and this evening. So take a few gentle breaths. Just breathe into your nose, out through your mouth, slowly, gently. You go into that heart space. And as you go into that heart space, let us gather with our guides and guardians. We're going to spend a few moments with the Kimi drum and do that drumming journey work at the same time. So gather with your healing teams, your spirit teams, your guardians. Whoever you like to join with. And as we do that, let us gather around this castle fire that's in the center. So come towards that fire, that castle fire, and come in close as you form a circle around that castle fire. Okay. And we're going to do the prayer of the seven galactic directions in Mayan tradition with the kingdom zone. From the east, not of light. May wisdom open in the dawn that is upon us, so that we may see things clearly. We welcome from the north, out of light. May wisdom mature among us so that we really see everything from within. Welcome from the West. Have some transformation. May wisdom be transformed into right action so we can accomplish what must be done. In the Greek from the South, the House of Eternal Sun. 
made right action to give us the harvest so that we might enjoy the truth of the planetary being. about the housekeeping as we are a listener supported radio program it's all of us that make it happen and today is Christmas so that giving spirit this week is rent week and we're working with that and we're working with our our expenses with BBS so let's talk about BBS first we need $300 each week to cover our expenses with uh, the radio and um, here's how you make a donation. So go into your heart space, see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com and click on Radio Station 2, or you can scroll down. You want, you're looking for the menu for Radio Station 2. So from the menu, you can click to the, our account there. So you're looking for up to Thursday, Friday, and Saturday at the 6 o'clock hour on Thursday and Friday. You'll find on Thursday, a uh, night at the round table with the panel. And there's an icon there you can click on that'll take you to our account. And then on Friday at the 6 o'clock hour, these are all Pacific time. Um, the hard news program with Tara and Lama on Friday nights. So uh, 
either one of those. And then, of course, this program at 1.30, um, the true history of Hershey and this era, like the galactic origin. So either one, any one of those three icons will take you directly to our account with BBS, and you can make a donation using your bank card in any amount. Thank you for your generosity, and thank you for taking that action. And keeping us here each week like we do. So lots of gratitude for all of your contributions and all the all the ways you show up. So we're also assisting Tar and Rama with their um living expenses and this is rent week. And so we need eleven fifty for that and another three hundred for bills and another couple hundred for the expenses and so that's Five or eleven, at sixteen fifty, <laughs> and we're grateful, grateful, grateful for your 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 gifts persistently, <laughs> making it happen each month in a really good way. And we know that that uh, due date is next Friday, so we're getting it in there. Um, here's how we make a contribution to Tara Mama. You want to access their PayPal account, so go to the web address, which is rainbowroundtable.net. And then on the homepage, if you click on the menu, you'll see the donate button link at near the at the bottom of that list. Click on that, and that links you to Rama's PayPal account. And you can make your donation there that way. So that works. And... um Alternatively, if you have your own PayPal account, you can access the friends and family option, but you need to have Rama's email for that. And Rama's email at PayPal is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. Okay, four nines. Koran9999 at hotmail.com. And there you can follow the directions for just getting from that point. And that takes away the the commercial charges, so your money goes a little further. That's how that works. So thank you. Thank you so much for making those contributions to Tara and Rama. We're grateful for all that they they deliver every week, each and every week. Um, and it's just such a, a wonderful way for us to process and, and gain more knowledge as you know how it feeds us and helps us to balance and and maintain our sanity in these amazing times and to move forward with our lives. So so much gratitude for all that Tara and Mama bring us and so lots of gratitude in gifting as well. So thank you. Um so as you send something through the PayPal send a Rama an email, let him know that you sent something and, and what you sent. And you can always memo how you want that to go. So here's that address for Rama's personal email. It is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, at Comcast.net. And then as you might need it, his, the uh, Tara Rama's physical address or post office address is as follows. Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280, and that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, and the zip code in Santa Cruz is 87567. 87567. So there you have it, all the information you need 
to make that gift. And so much gratitude to all, for all of you <sighs> for your lives and for showing up and doing what you do and make sense <laughs> make harmony in the world. So thank you. Thank you. Thirteen thank yous and honey in the heart. And we also have the free march site that we use to uh, access some really good remedies and the Rainbow Roundtable site is where we go to join that. And that helps the uh, with them as well, all of us. So here we go. This is the site. HTT, this is where you would go to join and find out about it and learn about it and, uh, and then set up your own site from there. So this is that site. HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash www.shopfreemark.com forward slash T-A-R-R-A-M. It's the username. So if the count number seven thousand, you know you're in the right place when you get that number. And so you can join from there. And look around and there's a lot of good products there. There's environmental products, health products, and abundance products as well. So it's all happening. Um so again, thirteen thank yous and honey in the heart, and I'm passing this talking stick to Tara and Rama in this talking stick. It's got Everybody's wrapped up in pop popcorn strings. I don't know what happened, but uh, there's cranberries and there's popcorn strings and lots of candy canes, lots of fairies, lots of feathers, lots of little people, and lots of celebrations. So greetings, Tar and Rama. Here they all come. Here comes that talking stick. Greetings. Greetings, everyone. Merry Christmas. Oh, my goodness. Merry Christmas. Thank you for being here. We are so grateful. And may Christmas be every day. There's a few folks that don't think that's very funny. That's right. <laughs> uh, Scrooge it comes to mind. But, um... So, Rama. Yeah. Um, you did you get a little bit of a message or a text message today? Mm, I I heard things on the radio that let's say it's. The larger story that Joni Patry ties into and the other folks talking about how the Matrix is falling apart and the <coughs> AI that is not real yet it is controlled by the fallen angels, and it is falling apart. I heard today on BBC News something about Russian mercenaries killing people in northern Africa. And I don't know where to go with that other than 
there are all kinds of wild stories going on. And um, well, why would Russians want to be killing people in Northern Africa? They got to ask that question. It has to do with the deals behind the scenes that have to do with the IMF and the World Bank and um, well, certainly Northern was, Africa has nothing to do with that. It might have been the country called Tigray. And well, why would Russian people want to go after them? They're having their own civil war inside I, their own country. See, this is all... Who said that? Somebody talking on BBC News. And uh-huh. I got to just put it in the circle of support as, you know, the Christ light is unfolding and pouring in at quantum light speed. There are solar flares going on, aurora borealises, and the light keeps getting higher. And these guys keep getting more and more out of control with their insanity of trying to contain the light. And at a certain point, the light will envelop them and they'll surrender. (laughs) Surrender to love. I don't know how to put it any other way. Well... Surrender to love is a good idea. Yeah. It's... Yeah, see, the one that... um, Is that... We want... That's the one that I found in 18 minutes. And who is that... Here's the one, no, there's one with George Nury that's 41 minutes, and this one is 41 minutes. Oh, okay, well I can, it's right here and it's 18 minutes. Well, not this one. This one is called The Evidence of Inner Earth Beings, Caravans, Cauldrons. Well, you told me it was 41 minutes. Then I was incorrect, I guess. Okay. So this is Regina Meredith. Yeah. Only 18 minutes. Okay. Well, that's okay. That that leaves room for other things. Okay. Um, We want to play for everyone what's really important. Finding your Akashic crystal. That sounds very interesting. Yes. That's what I can say about the big story is that China is kind of in the forefront. Max Kaiser talks about China. Joni Patrie talks about China. And there is a secret space program going on in China that has to do with the not-so-good ETs that are playing around with the Earth government there that is 
not exactly aligned with the office of the Christ, yet they know the lay of the land. And, I mean, there's stories out there, like in Russia, hypersonic missiles that can track our missiles. And, you know, that's called the mutually assured destruction story. We're done with war. I don't know how many ways to split frog hairs to talk about it, yet they are playing with these end game stories and they know the lay of the land. Uh, Dr. Greer has already laid it out as we were to try to destroy this planet and we're going to have to figure out how to talk to each other in the next step and that's going to be very interesting when the guns don't work and our soldiers have to learn a lesson about love and I'm not trying to be rude or uh, anything well, it's about mean, taking it to the higher level yeah I was asking uh, about concordance last night about being in concordance with that in other words, uh, the gun's not working as you're saying, and Mother said it last night, is that war is over. Yes. And the ones that are and always have been the war machine are the Republicans. Yeah, 100%. the corporations that... Shadowy corporations, the black budget, as Dr. Greer calls it, that orchestrate how the politicians spend the money on these technologies of death. Well, the corporations cover Democrats and Republicans. It's both sides of the coin. Actually, the corporations all we have. And... That's why Nassara's implicated. That's the first time we'll have a country. There was no country formed. Yet, the media are saying that we are a country and that there's all these other countries. There's no any countries. It's part of the matrix that, you know, you're in the matrix, but you're not. And we're waiting. Well, I thought that the matrix goes away with the, enact- with the enactment of Masara law. Correct. So the matrix is based on power over love. Yes. And the corporations got the same alignment. And I guess power would be cont- contained with uh, would be associated with the money that goes with the power. Yes. And uh, the and said corporations are people. That's not true. No. No. And then the other one they said is that money equals free speech. That's not true either. Because the corporations adhering to uh, uh, you might say a global slave labor market where they control it and there's only a small group of elites 
I mean, uh, Elon Musk is a, they said he's a trillionaire and what we know is he's a multi-trillionaire. Oh, I heard something somewhere today that Elizabeth Warren is looking into Elon Musk's private life and his records and she said this guy is someone to watch. He is not to be trusted. Elizabeth Warren said that. I thought she had the variant. Don't know where to go with that statement. <laughs> She's all better. Uh, <laughs> Sounds I don't know. like she's Maybe ready she to. Maybe she took a blue pill or a red pill or something. <laughs> well, it sounds like she's ready to roll up her sleeves anyway. Yeah, she is not happy with this man, and he is a threat to this democracy, is what she said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I well. <laughs> you have to have a country to have a democracy, don't you? Yeah, and for all intents and purposes, even though we don't, we do, so to speak, until we really do. And it's kind of like one overlaying on the other in the context where uh, you well, gotta got to go along with, in a sense... As you challenge it outright, confrontively, like folks, like Julian Assange, like Ed Snowden, like Glenn Greenwald, they put the crosshairs on you and they find a way how to shut you up permanently. And what I'm trying to say is... Well, that's what was so good about Democracy Now! last night. Because um, Edward Snowden has maintained his freedom because Glenn Greenwald... Helped him out. Helped him out, and so did Putin. Yeah, and this is a larger story about this AI program that's running this... (laughs) Story. I saw, you know, the Queen gave her address today, and a lot of people on BBC News were commenting she looked very sad because Philip's not with her, mm-hmm. Prince Philip, and she, she did about a 15 minute speech or something like that, and you could kind of tell that. She's fading into the background of the story, and she is a hologram. At a certain point, they will shut the hologram down. I don't know when, yet Prince Charles is not going to be the king, and I'll leave it there. No. And um, what was that we were told about? Between Prince William and Prince Harry. Prince William has kind of had to, let's say, toe the line, 
with the establishment and Harry and Meghan have just said, uh-uh, we ain't going there. And they, yet I think that Prince William made a choice too. They may have forced him to make that choice too. Uh, yeah. I don't think necessarily so because there's a lot of enmity between Prince William and Prince Harry. Yeah, they, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a trip. It's a big, <laughs> more than I want to go into. Well, what I think we heard is that the monarchy ends now. Why do we need kings and queens who are not part of the, you know, like Mother says, like Cryon says, we all kings and queens, sons and daughters of the Most High. And that's what sovereignty means, see. That's right. The thing is, is that as you have a global slave labor camp and a few small elite people who are heads of corporations have all the money, then there's no such thing as equality there. No. Therefore, there's no democracy. Because the first thing about democracy is everybody's a king and everybody's a queen. And everybody is sovereign and everybody is equal. Yeah. So we have been playing this game where, you know, and, and again, in 2010, it was more egregious than ever because, you know, wasn't it Roberts in 2010? John Roberts is the one that said corporations. Yeah. He did something with, with the law. Yeah, that's when the Supreme Court made Citizens United. Yeah, Citizens United. And that's where it, it's, it got rid of this uh, equality thing. And the Supreme Court is controlled by the Vatican. Once again, it goes back to the fallen angels. Right. So that's why we don't have any democracy there either. Yep. <laughs> uh, maybe we should play Joni. Play Joni, not to play. Oh, Meredith? I was going to play Max Kaiser. Okay, sure, because that deals with China. Yeah, and basically uh, what's been ignored about the truth of that matter. And I'm just going to say that the one thing about China that uh, Max Kaiser and his guest is, uh, and Stacy are focusing on is that China grew from capitalism. And they've been doing that for 20 years. Before that, they were just like the wild west of capitalism. But in 20 years, they took over the entire world economy. And they do own the entire world economy, not empire, not the United States, not England, not nothing else. And that's a big deal to just get that one. And uh, 
China by itself produces twice as much electricity than the United States ever did or ever will. And half of all the world raw materials flow into China for processing. Rare earth minerals. Their economy is far, 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 far greater than the economy of the United States. And the economy of the United States, based on its currency, doesn't really exist anymore. That's just... Okay, so we'll play this, and we'll just listen to Max Kaiser for a moment here in time. Okay, let me just turn this up. Hello, sorry kids. Santa is not coming to town anymore. Follow these instructions. I'll stick to the spirit of Christmas. You decide. Merry Christmas. of toys uh, today, uh, but due to supply chain constraints and the cost of uh, feeding the reindeer uh, skyrocketing, down through the chimney and into the living room pops Dan Collins. To explain all this to us, uh, Dan, welcome to our Kaiser Christmas show. Merry Christmas, everybody. Of course, you also normally would bring a lump of coal, but there's also a shortage of supply of coal, so we'll just have to accept your words your pearls of wisdom, let's say, here. So, you know, we look back at 2021 and we look forward at 2022 in this Christmas special. It is Christmas Day. And normally, you know, most Christmas presents here in the United States, anyway, come from China. Uh, we've had huge cons- uh, constraints in supply over the past year. That was certainly the biggest story, I would assume, you're going to say, of 2021. Uh, go a little bit further into what you think of that and other um, big stories of 2021 in that U.S.-China-Thucydides trap relationship. I think uh, 2021 has really exposed kind of the broken economy in the United States. We are what I call a warehouse nation now. We are a nation, you know, as they call Britain, used to be a nation of shopkeepers. The United States is now a nation of warehouses. We don't make anything anymore. We gradually lost our industrial capacity over the years. 2008 financial crisis was a real shock. We lost 50 to 80,000 factories. Those guys never came back uh, to a host of different issues. But we're now a nation of warehouses, same as reindeer, all backed up at the port of Long Beach. can take 30 days this year. It's, it's stretched over 30 days now to get something off a boat and onto a truck. All the ports in the United States have been backed up all, all year. Um, the ports in China have been backed up. We've never seen any kind of issues like this where you can't get containers. You, uh, shipping prices are up multiples. I mean, you know, 300, 400%. This year we saw uh, container prices go over $20,000. They used to be 3500 So you literally are 
cracking the supply chain to a degree that everything is breaking down. There are products that no longer make sense to ship because of the shipping costs. Yeah, we don't make anything in the United States. We can't replace them. So we're going to be in this situation for all of 22, 2022, um, until we can figure out at the root cause of what's going wrong with American capitalism and why a nation of 330 million people can't make anything for themselves. Well, you know, we've been talking about that for a number of years. It's easy. And again, maybe. I don't know any dates about the enactment of Nassara law, but this is what why Nassara law exists anyway. That for a number of years, it's easier to print money than to manufacture goods and try to sell them overseas. And so with that in mind, for the past 40 years, the U.S. no longer has that manufacturing base. And so they've become beholden to, to China. And we're also seeing some interesting developments out of China. So in October... Uh, the balance of trade, uh, power change with China surprised U.S. intelligence by launching a hypersonic missile traveling five times the speed of sound. Uh, what's, uh, what's the story in this? Is there, are reports coming out about this? Has this been verified? What's going on? It is verified. It is what some people refer to as a, the new Sputnik moment. However, we've also used the Huawei 5G technology as a Sputnik moment. I would call this a new Cuban missile crisis. It, moment. Um, you know, the China narrative has changed over the years. It used to be an economic story. It quickly went into a tech story. We started to realize, wow, we're actually behind on the tech. China's got 5G. We don't. We have nobody making it. And now it's moved into a military story with such uh, aggression going on on both sides in the South China Sea. So this hypersonic missile, uh, you know, a traditional ICBM has a, a low Earth orbit arc that's very static. It doesn't change. This hypersonic missile went around the entire world at a very low Earth orbit at 5,000 miles an hour, five times the speed of sound. You can't track it. So the United States today, we have missile batteries in California and Alaska, about 40 of them, to try to take down a rogue ICBM from somebody like North Korea. This changes the game. This basically means China and U.S. will have mutually assured destruction. It's going out this year. China's building three to 500 new nuclear missile silos. Who knows how many really they'll have. But these will all be outfitted with hypersonic missiles, a technology the United States doesn't have. China's literally passed us not only in consumer tech, but now in military tech. Um, they are showing a few areas where they're ahead of the United States. And in most weapons platforms, China can build the same thing, except at 10 to 20% of the cost. And that's because we've lost our industrial base. We have, if you study the defense industry, most components in the defense industry, you know, it's an oligopoly of the Lockheed Martins and the Boeings. And below these guys are all one factory making one part number, family owned, not competitive. We've, this country's not making, you know, we're replacing half the naval fleet now in maintenance getting repaired with Chinese stainless steel. We don't have rare earth. We don't have sensors. We don't have chips. We don't have components. So it's a mess. This could be a new Cuban missile crisis, but I assume the U.S. government will kind of ignore this like they ignore most things, and it will be an extraordinary success of some kind. It was <laughs> extraordinary, this uh, October surprise, what you're calling the new Cuban missile crisis. We do have a sort of um, a lethargy and an entropy up at the top of our institutions, and 
there, I mean, the fact that they said that U.S. intelligence had been surprised by this, of course, uh, you know. Well, U.S. intelligence has been completely gutted in China, and you know, Stacey, like, came out earlier this year, the United States lost the entire uh, network in China. There was over 30 people executed. They were hacked, and all the CIA's assets are in China have been gone for two to three years. So it doesn't surprise me they, they had no intelligence on this. I mean, we're under, like you just said, industrial, we're in an institutional collapse of some kind. You can see it in the military, you can see it in the money printing, you can see it in the lack of being able to get anything done. And, and that's where we're at. Also, like if you turn into the cable news, in particular MSNBC, like half of the TV presenters are like celebrity intelligence bimbos, right? They're, they're CIA agents, FBI agents, and they're like on television instead, which kind of reminds you of the end of the Roman Empire. Like there's a sort of bimbofication going on. And, you know, who doesn't want to be a celebrity instead of like going out there and having to track down, you know, Chinese spies or something? It's, it's just easier to, well, you know, better paid and less likely to end up, I don't know, dead or something. But, you know, I guess the most important part of this balance of power, yes, I think a mutually assured, assured destruction has in the past proven to be a positive for most people because it does end the chance of war. But there is that one thing of Taiwan. You know, we had in 2021 the humiliating pullout of U.S. troops from Afghanistan, leaving beyond billion, behind billions and billions of dollars worth of weapons. So um, and what is the chance of conflict over Taiwan? Because is it something that could happen? Is yeah. it uh, something that the U.S. could possibly even remotely win if they can't even beat the Taliban? Chance of confrontation is extremely high. Uh, as you mentioned in Afghanistan, we left behind $80 billion in equipment. The, the entire Russian military budget is $50 billion. So it's you know this was we were literally chased out of the out of the country by the Taliban after spending 2.2 trillion dollars. That that's an extraordinary success. If people think we can defend Taiwan, they're they're, they're lunatics. So China has so many land-based cruise missiles that can go through the first island chain all the way down to Guam. That's Taiwan is in the first island chain. Xi Jinping has said before 2025 Taiwan will be reunited. So I think Taiwan's on the clock. Well, how that's going to affect us is 40% of the world's semiconductors still come out of Taiwan. When China has control of that, we're going to have to bank for chips. We won't be able to make an F-150. We won't be able to, to do anything here without chips. I thought, you know, necessity would drive the innovation and, and the, um, the building of, uh, of the manufacturing capacity. So, like, when everything, uh, when the pandemic happened, and we, we saw the beginning of the shortages of things like toilet paper and face mask, uh, PPE. Uh, I assumed that somebody would do something and we would restore some sort of manufacturing for these basic goods, needs, uh, pharmaceuticals. Nothing ever happened with that. So, you know, the, the, it, it, do you think it's related to the end of the U.S. dollar? This fiat system has kind of made us all that laying flat movement that's happening in China where they're collecting in the other side of the fiat dollars. We send them all our fiat dollars and we, they send us their goods. Um, and the reason why I ask that is because another big story of 2021 was China kicking the Bitcoin miners out. Now, this is the hardest money ever created, ever found in the universe and Immediately, like, 
Two years later, with the, the pandemic, we haven't figured out anything. We can't manufacture masks still. And yet within three months, the entirety of all the Chinese miners left China, set up in Kazakhstan, set up in, in the United States and Texas. So the United States is now the largest producer of, of Bitcoin. They're the biggest mining operations there. So, I mean, do, do you kind of follow that and think that's a truth that this is a kind of a lethargy setting in because of the end of a, a fiat system? Yeah, absolutely. So for two points. On the first point, the when we talk about the money printing has created massive misprice signals throughout the entire American economy since 1971. We are a paper empire. The paper aristocracy gets all that free money. It doesn't pay to set up a manufacturing plant. That's a real capex, right? They don't want to sell you a car. They want to lease you a car. They don't want to sell you furniture. They want to lease you furniture. Everything has become financialized. The private equity that takes 0% money, free money, their first thing is to cut all the jobs, close the factories, and outsource it. Okay, this, our whole system is set up not to make anything here because it damages your financials because you're spending real money to build real plants. You look at the chips. Intel just asked the government for $100 billion to build a chip plant, but six months ago they paid out $100 billion in stock buybacks. So they really want free money just to build a factory. Otherwise, the financial roller coaster just keeps rolling, and our signals in this economy is just paper money. Paper money, print it, and flip it. It's not to build anything real. That's the root cause we got to get at to. Regarding the Bitcoin mining, this is the first win the United States has had against China in a decade. This is a win. That's kind of the model is entrepreneurs. You know, Bitcoin mining, as you know, I had a Bitcoin mine myself, a whole industrial facility. I So I do follow it, and these guys... What they did was pretty incredible. I mean, the hash rate collapsed and then was back in three months. Entrepreneurs, young, you know, new entrepreneurs setting it up. And it's, it's a very industrial type process. You have to manage your electricity, your, you know, your, your heating, your cooling, these types of things. So getting the assets, which are the miners, setting it up. So I think that's kind of the new model. We have to look at the whole ecosystem of all types of industrial and manufacturing and make sure the ecosystem makes work, makes it makes it available for miners and just anyone in the industrial supply chain to rebuild the country. Oh, wow. This is a, a positive note for sure. Well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, more with Dan Collins on our Kaiser Christmas Fandango special. Don't go away. Hold on, everybody. Christmas with Max Kaiser and Stacey Herbert. Filling in for Santa Claus today is Dan Collins. And we're talking about geopolitics and stuff like that. China, America. Dan, uh, let's discuss the consumer side of this U.S.-China relationship. You describe the United States as a warehouse economy. If the U.K. was a nation of housekeepers during the last days of the empire, we are now a warehouse economy, as you have stated. It's kind of our characteristic now. Uh, chip manufacturers in the U.S. spent tens of billions on share buybacks. are now getting handed tens of billions from the taxpayer to build foundries in the U.S., is that going to go well? And, you know, in China, they're kind of making fun of us because we are, we do have some chip foundries in production in Arizona. They're building them up, and they're kind of sharing pictures now on the Internet. Look at this plant, and years later, hardly anything's happened. 
So in China, they build it in six months, but over here, it takes a year. We just have the foundation dug. So um, that's kind of going around on, on, in Twitter now, especially amongst the Chinese wolf warrior diplomats are kind of laughing like, ah. And uh, we force the chip makers to come here. It's, it's, a, it's a good idea. We have to produce something here locally. Otherwise, we're always going to be at uh, the mercy of China for chips. Speaking of chips and high tech, uh, Huawei was in the news in 2021, and that came to a head with the arrest of the woman who is the daughter of the founder of Huawei, and yeah. uh, I guess she was the CEO. Uh, she was yeah. released. Uh, China sent a jumbo jet to come collect her, and she was met on the runway by thousands of uh, Chinese fans of her, and uh, it was a very nationalistic moment from what I could tell. Um why do you think Biden uh, did this deal? Of course, if, if Trump had done this, this would have been uh, everybody would have been up in arms. But what's that signaling to you in terms of the next two years or three years of his administration? Yeah, she's a national hero in China, no doubt. I mean, it was like the biggest news for a week. Um, it's a it's a sign of a potential thaw between China U.S. relations. I have information now that state, large state-owned enterprises are negotiating LNG contracts with the United States, so that's going to help drive down the trade deficit. Um, there's a lot of work to do. You know, Boeing has not had a word from China in five years. So China is by far the largest aviation market. So there's a lot of bilateral trade that could happen um, in a potential thaw. Um, however, the issues in the East China Sea, South China Sea with, is, is kind of putting those kinds of things on hold. Um, but, you know, we, we'll see as 2022 develops if we're going to move into more of a thawing in the relationship or it's just going to continue to ratchet up uh, into a war footing. You've been the only one that's been right of all the analysts on China for the last 10, 15, 20 years. Fortunately, you have been a friend of Kai's report, and we've, all, we've been the only – outlet that has called it right. Most U.S. media has said for the past 10, 15 years, it had the likes of Kyle Bass on, and even worse than him in terms of getting it wrong, is that they've kept on saying like it's collapsing, it's collapsing, it's collapsing, the housing bust. Um, but in this past year, we did see President Xi really crack down genuinely on the big finance, like Alibaba, Jack Ma was, uh, something happened with him, we're not quite clear. But we also saw the uh, property developers, they cracked down on them. So what, is this actually going to be the moment that finally all those CNBC and, and Bloomberg columnists and, and, and opinion makers are right? Or is this, do you think it's just a lot of um, nothing? You get like a guy like Kyle Bass who's been wrong now for 10 years. His hedge fund has shrunk 90%. It's just kind of a disaster. And you got guys like Gordon Chang that gets reeled out under the, He's literally all, in, all for 212 on Chinese predictions for 20 years. He, he wrote a book, 2001, The Coming Collapse of China, and then I read it. It was like it was like a child had written it. It was nonsense. But he keeps getting wheeled up there, you know. So these guys, what's happened in 2021, people don't understand the root cause of China. Who really owns these companies? Huawei has a murky ownership, okay? Who really owns Huawei and Alibaba and Evergrande? Our top, top CCP families, Chinese Communist Party. There's an estimated 60 billion, 60 billionaires in the Communist Party, you know, top standing committee. So there's hidden ownership in all these companies. And what you have is fight amongst the princelings. 
So all these guys have gotten, you know, Jack Ma owns Alibaba, but there's a hundred other owners that have big shares in the company that you don't know. Evergrande, you can't do that kind of business without being super politically connected, but they have a front man up as an ownership. So what's going on is Xi Jinping, the premier, is battling other family dynasties in the seat in the Chinese Communist Party. That's what's really going on. You can't lose money in Chinese property. You build an apartment for 6,000 RMB a square meter and you sell it for 50,000 RMB a square meter. What's happened is like in the Evergrande case, their debt just gets, they get a call on their debt. So Xi Jinping's people tell the bank, stop issuing credit. They have massive amounts of assets. It will not lead to a contagion, even though it, it you know, while, while we're over here collapsing, we printed 40% of all dollars in the last 18 months. We're in, we're under a hyper collapse here, but yet we focus on Evergrande. China just can use the local governments to bail them out. Some people, especially the foreigners, are probably going to lose debt, and Evergrande may not, well, could not continue, you know, as it is today, as well as the whole property sector. But what's going on in the clampdown on Chinese companies is really infighting between CPC families, and that's what the Western media don't understand. That's why they get it wrong every time. Let's uh, take a look at, uh, again, on the Bitcoin situation. People like in the China shutting down of the Bitcoin mining as the second biggest mistake they've made in 500 years after they kicked, burnt down their treasure fleet under the Ming Dynasty. You know, I, I think about uh, what happened in the 1980s with the U.S. and Japan. Right at that time, Japan was about to take over. It was the Japan that can say no. Every op-ed piece was about Japan's style of management and manufacturing was going to eclipse the U.S. It was a foregone conclusion. And then, with the introduction of the internet, uh, Japan, because it's a conformist society, they did not have the intellectual capacity to develop all the creativity we saw on the internet, and that whole story. Uh, died. As a matter of fact, the stock market peaked, the property bubble blew up, and they've been in 20 years of recession. But with uh, China, is it? can you make a parallel here? Because here you have Bitcoin. It's the new internet. It's the internet on steroids, and it's powering a revolution across the monetary networks of the world, and everything's being built on on, on the Bitcoin. Is, are we going to see a replay of this uh, 1980s U.S.-Japan story? China, and I remember those days in Japan, I still, you know, I had a stony walk by myself. Uh, what happened was China, though, is 20 times the size of Japan. That's the difference. Um, and they're far above us technically. So I don't think they'll fade off as quickly as, like, say, in Japan. Regarding the Bitcoin mining, I have said today we're at a trillion dollar asset for Bitcoin. When it's $10 trillion, I think the Chinese may wake up and go, okay, we gotta get back in this market. They still control the equipment manufacturing, but they have banned mining and holding Bitcoin because they want to pump up the digital RMB. They want full control. So we're, we're really, the world's going to go between full control and decentralization, like what Bitcoin is, the network. So I, I believe at some point, it won't be, it won't be a year, it might not be two years, but at some point they'll probably make a reversal and say, okay, this is a $10 trillion global asset. It's, you know, it's become a micropayment over the Lightning Network. Uh, PO trade finance is happening in Bitcoin, and which it does today. A guy in Nigeria will just send Bitcoin to a trader, you know, to a, a guy in China who's got an account out of Hong Kong or the United States because it's so much easier than transferring all the SWIFT system. SWIFT system. The SWIFT system's dying. Russia and China want out of it. We've weaponized it. The whole world's getting out of that. The answer is Bitcoin. Has China made a huge mistake? Absolutely, because most of these guys are 80 years old that run China. But I think in a couple of years, they'll probably 
make a reversal at some point. Of course, uh, most of the people who run the United States are also in their 80s. Yeah. It does just feel like kind of a coterminous thing, right? They're both, uh, it, it is going to be like, Everybody keeps on saying, well, you know, we have this Thucydides trap and China's the rising power and blah, blah, blah. But that's kind of like an old model that we've had for the last few hundred years of big nation states. Of course, China is more like a civilization rather than a nation state. But Bitcoin is a a civilization as well, right? It's its own culture. And as you pointed out, the, the... the pioneer spirits of being able to just like pick up and move across the entire world with all your operations and set up and start operating somewhere else within months is just unheard of anywhere else. So, I mean, can you see a positive outcome? Like, you know, the city, these traps are usually quite violent throughout history, but we could see them start to pass and just like, kind of collapse together in a way and we'll have this new paradigm post fiat, fiat dollar, uh, swift sort of system, command and control centralized. We're going to have a more decentralized Bitcoin civilization. Yeah, I see the, the world going into two orbits. You're in a China orbit or you're in the U.S. orbit. We be kind of decoupled, uh, although we're still highly dependent on China for everything. I kind of use an analogy that China's gone into 1984 and the United States is going into Blade Runner. So China is highly controlled. They're becoming more controlled. They're going to keep making mistakes like they did with Bitcoin, um, they, like they did this year with the power shortage. You know, they told everyone to meet emission targets. They wouldn't let the coal producers, they wouldn't let the electrical producers increase their price. So they kind of slow walk electric production. All of a sudden there's no power. They're going to keep making these mistakes as they centralized. As I've said before, China grew from capitalism. They were the wild west of capitalism for 20 years. Finally, when they took over the world economy, and they do own the world economy. Keep in mind, they produce twice the electricity the United States does. Half of the world's raw materials flow into China for, for processing. Their economy is far, far bigger than the United States. It's just, you know, our GDP numbers are like our inflation statistics. They're not real. We're just flipping the goods to each other on paper and services. So, uh, yeah, where are we going? It's going to be, we're going to have to reindustrialize the United States with this whole Bitcoin ethos, young entrepreneurs, technology, lightning network, you know, Stripe, these kinds of things, and use that as a model to reindustrialize everything. Well, I think that's a very positive note to end on this Christmas. It's not all bad. It's not all good. It's, it's more than a lump pole, right? TikTok next block. It's all happening on the TikTok block, block, Bitcoin, blockchain. Jay Collins, special thanks for filling in for Santa Claus this year. I know you have to get back to the reindeer. And they're hungry. And uh, I believe there's some uh, Chinese food on the menu this year, which uh, Rudolph loves. But thanks for being on Kaiser Report. Merry Christmas. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of Kaiser Report with me, Max Kaiser, and Stacey Herbert. Again, thanks for our guest, Dan Collins. Until next time. Bye, y'all. Okay. I was going to play the Going Underground, but maybe we'll just go right to uh, Joni. Okay? Yeah. Ready, Rama? Uh-huh. Merry Christmas, everybody. I'm just going to hold on to what Mother said. It's over. Yeah. They won't be able to get back up, and they'll still kick and scream. I know that. There we go.
No more dodo birds in the presidency, please. Of one sort or another. Joni Petrie, and welcome to my YouTube channel. Well, today I have something very important to share with you, and it is some charts I've been working on for quite some time, and I do want to let everyone know that I will be taking this to a much deeper level on my predictions. When I have my predictions, you can sign up for them December 18th, it's a Saturday, at 12 Central Standard Time, I'm going to be delivering an uncensored version, if you join this class, of what's going to be happening for 2022. Now, I'm going to be taking these charts that I'm going to be sharing with you right now to a much deeper level. I don't know how much I can actually share here but I will share everything on my predictions. So what I want to look at is the charts for China, United States, and Xi Jinping, and President Biden. Because this is how I can tell what's going on with the countries, the leaders, and that equates to the future of what we can expect. And from what I'm surmising from these charts, I do think that China needs to be watched very carefully. Let me put that mildly, okay? Now remember, I want to remind everyone to go to my website if you want to sign up for this class. Go to galacticcenter.org and click on the 2022 predictions and you can be part of this. I will have a live Q&A. Anything you want to talk about, I'll be there to discuss it with you. So with that, and one more thing before I get down into the meat of all of this, I want to remind everyone that I have a new start date for my University of Vedic Astrology. If you've been wanting to learn Vedic Astrology, here is your answer. I have an entire university where you will have a live tutor. I will work with you personally, and we have live meetings every week, plus many recordings that you will take test, and this will give you the information, everything you need to become an astrologer, a Vedic astrologer. Go to universityofvedicastrology.com, and the new start date is January 10th, 2022. So with that, let me put up the charts of what I want to discuss today. And most important... What happened? Oh, commercial. Okay. I discovered the eight immortal kings of Samaria lived a total of 241,200 years. importantly, I think the first two charts I want to compare are Xi Jinping's chart and the United States chart. So putting these both up, you're going to see how they relate. 
So what I'm looking at in Xi's chart is notice where his sun is at zero degrees of Gemini. And notice where Mars is in the United States chart. Right exactly zero degrees of Gemini. And with that, I think this is very telling for that she wants control of the United States. And on top of that, when you consider a birth chart, you're going to want to also look at, yes, the sun. The sun is going to be so important. But going back to the Mars-Sun conjunction, the sun meaning rulership, dictatorship, or I shouldn't say dictatorship, but rulership. It's the precedent. But Mars being on the sun, she feels like the United States is a threat to his rule. And he's going to do something about it. Now, if you'll notice, not only are is the sun and Mars aligned from these charts, but also look at where she has his Mars. Mars is with the sun. And the fact that they're in Gemini, this guy is really a smart one. Gemini is the sign of learning, education, always stretching the mind. So, I mean, he is very versed, well-versed in everything. He knows what he's doing. But Mars being so close to his son can make him very angry at times. And with it being in Gemini, he has his way with words. He has his way with his, when he becomes angry, he is going to do something to stay in control and stay in charge. But notice how his Mars hooks up over the United States, all of those planets in Gemini, natal Mars, Venus, Jupiter, and the sun. But more than anything, I think it's very important to take notice of where she's Uranus sits at 23 degrees of Gemini, smack dab on the USA's sun at 22 degrees of Gemini. Uranus is the planet of sudden unexpected changes, upsets, and the sun And the United States represents our leadership. So something's about to change. Unexpectedly, big time. And the way these charts are aligned, they are very difficult. May I also mention that when the coronavirus came to fruition in the U.S., it was around February of 2020 when we realized that this was a pandemic here. The reason why I'm bringing that up is because Mars and K2 were conjoined in Sagittarius, exactly aspecting all of those planets in Xi Jinping's chart in Gemini, plus all those planets in Gemini, in the United States chart. So I believe this was a hit from China. And as I've said before, it was a terrorist attack. And it was 
That's incorrect, Rama. This is the big lie. Well, she doesn't understand. No, and I don't know where to go with that. Well, we just got to tell everybody that that's completely incorrect. Yeah. And everybody will learn that the United States did the hit on everybody. Okay, here we go. Far-reaching and deadlier and affected the world. Okay, so furthermore, if you'll compare the United States with his chart, he has a moon K2 conjunction in Cancer. And it sits close to the ascendant, but it's actually behind the ascendant. But that sits very close to the Rahu Mercury in the 8th house in the USA chart. So you see how this is all lined up. The 8th house deals with deep, dark secrets. K2 is losses. The fact that K2 sits on Rahu and Rahu sits on K2 from these charts is indicating that there is some something of a dark nature of a connection. And you see the United States is the leader in the world in terms of, of money exchange. Well, the eighth house deals with big money, money from everything, money from everywhere. And you know, this is going to be a huge event that he's trying to take over the control of the financial reign in the world. And he's after the United States. So I don't know how much further I can go with this because I'm sure, you know, this is going to be seen all over the world and I don't want to be in trouble, but, but. Okay. I'm going to just say that China already took over the global economy and we just heard that. From. What happened? Um, one minute. It stopped. And oh. Do you want me to continue? Yeah, I just wanted to finish it out. Okay, because I can't. Very close to the Rahu Mercury in the 8th house in the USA chart. So you see how this is all lined up. The 8th house deals with deep, dark secrets. K2 is losses. The fact that K2 sits on Rahu and Rahu sits on K2 from these charts is indicating that there is some something of a dark nature of a connection. And you see the United States is the leader in the world in terms of, of money exchange. Well, the eighth house deals with big money, money from everything, money from everywhere. And you know, this is going to be a huge event that he's trying to take over the control of the financial reign in the world. And he's after the United States. So I don't know how much further I can go with this because I'm sure, you know, this is going to be seen all over the world and I don't want to be in trouble. But, but furthermore, 
I want you to know, going back to just looking at the United States and pulling up Joe Biden's chart. So let's uh, look, look at Joe Biden's chart and the United States comparatively. If you will notice, Joe Biden has his K2 at seven degrees of Aquarius. And look at the United States moon, seven degrees Aquarius. Now that's a big deal. And what's really going on, which has come to surface and passing right now, is where Rahu and Ketu have been around seven to six degrees of Taurus Scorpio. Okay, Taurus Scorpio. Look at that. They are right there. And it's creating a grand cross where Rahu and K2R are squaring both the Rahu and K2 in Joe Biden's chart. And they are, because his Rahu and K2 sit at seven degrees of Leo Aquarius. And in the transit in the heavens right now, they're at seven degrees of Taurus Scorpio. So an exact square. This is a wake up. But not only that, the fact that the United States moon is where K2 is, there's some kind of loss. K2 represents losses for the United States that's incurring due to what's going on in Joe Biden's chart. Now, in in January, transiting Jupiter will come up and hit that degree mark. And when it does, that will be very significant in terms of the whole outlook of the media and what they report. I believe the truth's going to come out. The absolute truth. Why do I say that? Because if you consider where the moon is in the United States chart, it's in the third house. And the third house rules communications and the media. And let me just say this. The media is the most powerful force in the world. I mean, face it. If the media is able to ban the president, Donald Trump, then you know it's more powerful than the president, who was said to be the most powerful person in the world. But it's not true. It's the media. So with Jupiter hitting K2, what is going to happen in Joe Biden's chart and for the United States chart? It has to be that something that has been hidden will be revealed. And it has to involve Joe Biden because this is in his chart. There's no other way to see this. Now, there's one more thing. And this, by the way, will happen. Okay. The first thing that came to mind is Joe Biden ordered 9-11. All right. Continue. And when Jupiter will be seven degrees of Aquarius sitting on Biden's K2 and the United States moon, this means a big loss. And this occurs January 5th. Be, be aware 
Something's due to happen around that time. Sometimes it doesn't happen dead on the day, but it happens around that time. The planets are in transit. A lot of people that have cats are unknowingly doing something that is shortening their pet's life. I've been a veterinarian for 45 years. So now I want to compare the chart of China with the United States chart. And you're going to see how these charts truly align and what they're telling us. So putting up the chart for China... And the next one is going to be the United States again. And if you look, look where K2 is in the chart for China. K2 sits at 23 degrees of Virgo. Now remember K2 is losses. And anytime you have Rahu and K2 uh, combined in any way, it always deals with some type of karmic issue. Or some kind of destiny issue. So K2 sits at 23 degrees of Virgo and Rahu sits at 23 degrees of Pisces. Plug it into the United States chart. Saturn sits in the 10th house at 24 degrees of Virgo. So K2 aligns with Saturn. And Saturn in the United States chart is in the 10th house of the government and leadership. So this means that China is definitely at odds with the United States. And there are many, many things that are going on with the Chinese that we don't know. And I don't pretend to know either. All I know is We don't know. And we know that they are up to something. Now, I think I'm going to have to end this because I'm going to save the rest for last going to my class on the December 18th where we can analyze this in greater detail without being censored in any way. So, With that, here's what I want you to surmise out of this analysis, that the United States has some enemies. And the one that I think that needs to be further investigated and to be on a lookout with is China. So with that, I'd like to close. If you would like more information on me, if you would like to take my classes, first go to my website, which is galacticcenter.org and check out my beautiful spiritual jewelry. Sign up for my free newsletter. And if you want to learn Vedic astrology, go to my university website, which is universityofvedicastrology.com. Thank you. So, Rama, that was last week's. It was. There's supposed December to be. December 24th, this came out. She said December 18th, my class. Yeah, this came out. Okay, well, it came out today. Okay, well, all I can say is that we all know what the truth has to bring. Yeah. 9-11 was an inside job. What was supposed to happen on 
Nasara was supposed to be enacted into law. That means announced as, as such by Alan Greenspan that morning. And again, Joe Biden ordered because he was the head of the, uh, uh, the, um, you might say the foreign, uh, what was that? Uh, Council on Foreign. Council on Foreign Relations Committee. He, he, I mean, he's not the head of the Council on Foreign Relations. He was the head of the Foreign Relations Committee in. Chairperson. The chairperson, call. right. And, uh, so he was ordered uh, by Cardinal Egan, who represents the black Pope in the United States. And so he was Joe Biden as chairperson of the foreign relations committee was ordered by Cardinal Egan from Rockefeller center to order George Tennant, the head of the CIA to, um, Order 9-11. So that's what she doesn't know and what we know. And again, Joe Biden is a clone. And this is an interesting piece. And Rama, I think you said something to me when I brought it up this morning on the news this morning. Uh, there was a, a, a bit of a report about Kamala Harris. I don't remember hearing that she said in that report that there was going to be a woman uh, as president somewhere around January, February of this year. Yet, maybe it was last week when we heard that. I think it was. I think it was her that said it somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yet, uh, the point I'm making is that, uh, this, this kind of raised my eyebrows because it was in the New York Times that Vice President Harris had contacted Hillary Clinton to help her to plot a path forward. And, I kind of linked that together with Joe Biden, the clone, just doing the bidding of Hillary Clinton. Right, Rama? Yeah. So. So we're going down the zigzag path to nowhere. Yeah, but we were also given some insight about, uh, you might say, Kamala Harris becoming the president, yet she would be uh, a bridge, you might say, to um, move us out of the old controlling elites, which would be Hillary Clinton. C'est possible. And Hillary Clinton actually uh, doesn't do anything unless she consults with Henry Kissinger. And Henry Kissinger's, I believe he's a hologram by now. He's a hologram, just like the Queen. Just like Hillary. Just like Hillary. So, as Mother said, 
on Friday. This is over. They've got all these holograms in place in lieu of what else do they have that they can do because the people still have this program, mindset program, that this is where the power and the money is, which is true, but it's old money. They're playing with fear, which is tangible, and love overcomes fear. Yeah, except for one thing, that Nasara, if it weren't in place, uh, uh, and I go down to, um, what's uh, Carl Callahan, isn't it? Carl Kellerman? Carl, Carl Kellerman. I mean, he's just showing that the Mayan calendar, and the Mayan calendar is showing it too, that we've got another... What is how many hundreds of years? Four hundred more years of going downward spiral, and I ain't going there. <laughs> well, no, but we we're, we're talking this through in terms of intervention because the planet, I believe, is what uh, Mother Gaia herself is saying. I won't survive another four hundred years of this bunch. You know, beating my, beating me up and everybody on, on, you know, living on, on, on my body, that that won't, that won't work. Right, Rama? Right. Okay, so what are we going to do now? Uh, Regina Meredith. Alright, let's play Regina Meredith, everybody. Have you ever wondered how certain fantastical tales of folklore and fairy tales came to be true? While many of us chalk that up to fertile imaginations of our ancestors or perhaps being under the influence of hallucinogens, Michael Mott is saying these tales may well be based on reality. In his book, Caverns, Cauldrons, and Concealed Creatures, Michael tells us that there are vast underground biosystems that are home to species that humanity has come to fear, specifically humanoid species that are not of Earth. Welcome. Wow, what an intriguing book this is. Well, I appreciate that. I, I don't know if I would say they're not of Earth. I think that actually they very much are well, of Earth. you're right. I just yeah. had this conversation with another gentleman because we tend to think of them as otherworldly, but in yes. fact, they're just a different species here. Well, I think that what we're seeing here is a group of species, and they are to some extent related to human beings. Now, this is you know, told in, in every folklore tradition around the world. We're going to get into a whole bunch of them because yeah. there are so many in different ways these these beings show right. up from seemingly benign and cute and friendly to terrifying. But right. first of all, I want to get to you because you had an event in your young life in Morocco that right. wasn't very, in, well, it, it was terrifying to you as a young boy because you had a housekeeper that kept, and the, the people in Morocco are very much ordered toward the unseen world and the jinn and fear of them. Well, they, they did fear the jinn. Um, I, I remember uh, an incident when my brother and I actually had, had we just, you know, kids, we had brought home a large lizard. And they just lost it. They, they could not handle this thing, they said it was, you know, it was a, a gin and and so forth. And of course, you know, of course, we just laughed, and it was just a lizard. But there was another incident um, 
when we were on a river on a, on a tour. Mm-hmm. And the boatman took us around a bend, and there was a cave up in the in the cliff side. And so I, I asked him, you know, being seven, eight years old, I said, you know, what's in that cave? And he said, oh, he says, you don't want to go in there. And I said, why? And he said, because Asia Candesia, Asia Candesia lives in there, and that uh, she is a witch, and she is from the underworld, and all this kind of stuff, and she's really bad, and she'll come get you. She takes little kids. And, you know, this is a typical boogeyman-type story. But when I got older and I was doing more research into these things, I remembered the story. And, you know, over and over again, we hear this this idea. And it scared you. Well, it it, it had an effect. It, yeah. it definitely piqued my imagination. There seems to be a feeling in general that what is subterranean is dark and evil. I mean, right. going back into mythology and the the journey into the underworlds and such and dealing with demons before one can surface back into right. the sun, the light. Well, even going back to, you know, the oldest written story we have, Gilgamesh or Gilgamesh, he, he had the journey into the underworld and he was searching for, you know, immortality. Well, the reason he was searching for immortality was because he was descended for, from someone that claimed to be a god. And this is a theme that you find again and again, demigods or as as the Torah and the Old Testament called them, Nephilim or Anakim, which is very similar to Anuna, you'll, you'll notice. Mm-hmm. These are beings that are part human and they're part of this underworld um, reality. And just like with today, with, with so-called alien abductions and things of this nature, they're fascinated by human genetic diversity and they seem to require an influx of human genetic material. You know, if they were from the other side of the galaxy or another star. Mm. Commercials. Here we have this large pyramidal structure and the witnesses, they can't believe their eyes. They got to pay for it somehow, honey. Or another star system and they yeah. can travel at the speed of light or warp space and time, create a wormhole. Their technology would be so advanced, and I'm not saying that it's not, but they would be able to recombine their own DNA, rewrite their DNA, repair any damage. They wouldn't need to come all the way out here to do it. In that other is words, true. In other words, the only reason they would do this is because in some way they are genetically related to us. And when you look, or at, have to at least adapt to this environment. Yes, exactly. Maybe they're half they're half genetically related to us. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the, the biodiversity of the Earth, you have you know hermit crabs and blue whales and elephants and Maasai warriors and penguins. And if you were from another world or or, or you or just someplace you're totally isolated, if you lived on an island your whole life and didn't know anything about the rest of the world, and you saw all these different life forms, you would think, where in the world did all these things come from? I mean, they can't possibly come from the same place, but they do. They share a common genetic heritage. They are actually genetically similar and related, you know, from the biodiversity of the earth. Well, when you look at the things that people encounter, whether it's, you know, so-called aliens of different types or, or, you know, hairy humanoids or chupacabras or any number of strange creatures that people say that they've encountered, there's shock and there's awe when they see these beings. But they're astonished. They don't, they're not thinking in terms of does this conform to an earthly vertebrate template? And without fail, it does. They, they always conform to an earthly vertebrate template. And they're, they have bilateral symmetry, which means both sides are basically equal, you know, two arms, two legs, or 
four flippers or whatever the case may be. And they are going to be either reptilian, mammalian, or a combination of the two. Now, people that claim they've seen insectoids. Well, the ant people. Right. But insects are part of the Earth's genetic diversity. Yes, they are. And on top of that, these insectoids that people see generally have two arms and two legs. And the praying mantis people. Yes, still two arms and two Two legs. Two arms and two legs. So we're talking about a vertebrate of some kind or at least something that's partially vertebrate. Now, is it? You know, is it some sort of genetically engineered form? Who knows? I mean, ancient texts are full of stuff like that. You know, you'll find letters all over the world about about the gods uh, mixing species together. You know, in the Book of Enoch, yeah. one of the apocryphal books, that's one of the great sins before the flood of the of the Nephilim, the uh, the ones who are already half human. And one of the things that they they did because they weren't just physical giants, they were mental giants, and. They were the, the books of Enoch. All three versions say that they were mixing human and animal DNA, and that this was a great threat to the 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 future propagation of, of those species as they were meant to be. In other words, it threatened their their viability mm-hmm. if, if it were to continue. Mm-hmm. And so you you have this in several of the apocryphal books. Well, you know the Old Testament just simplifies it and says the flesh all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth. But it's talking about what Enoch, what was talked about in the book of Enoch, which was this 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 genie splicing and the creatures, creating these creatures. Well, when you look today at the things that people see, like El Chupacabras and, and a number of other anomalous creatures, they exhibit the same sort of hybrid characteristics of several species mixed into one. Mm-hmm. And we're not talking about supernatural stuff here. I think we're talking about, in this particular instance, probably talking about science. You call them interterrestrials. I, yeah, That's one term you use right. in your book, inter-terrestrials, instead of extraterrestrials, interterrestrials. And subterrestrials. And subterrestrials. And, right. you know, you're, now I don't even know if this is related. It's just popping into my mind. It's a conversation I had with a fellow who'd been with an intelligence community. Um, he, he died a rapid and unfortunate death, but right. just before he died, I had this conversation with him about what was happening to the human species. And he was saying that there are going to be, there's going to be a larger percentage or incorporation of copper in the blood as opposed to iron in the blood. And he, he was talking about species that uh, already possess high levels of copper. And he seemed to be referring to what we have called ETs or pale or blue or mm-hmm. gray types of species as having more copper in the blood. That, that's interesting. I know that if you, you know, if you have too much silver, in your blood that you will take on that sort of a cast. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is that, again, we have to wonder what we hear, how much is disinformation and how much is, is when I hear the word alien, I think anything strange to you is, 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 is alien. alien. Exactly. Right. Well, he was dealing in some pretty strange right. projects. Right. It was a private conversation. And, and I'm not saying again that there are not extraterrestrials out there in the universe. I believe the universe is teeming with life. I believe it's everywhere. And some of them are probably advanced and they're probably, you know, uh, bipedal uh, humanoid forms. But mm-hmm. logic dictates that the huge variety of bipedal, basically reptilian, mammalian appearing creatures that have been seen by people here on Earth are not all coming here from 50 different planets. Right. They're right. from here, and they've always been from here. Okay, so let's let's start getting into um, more the the geological aspect of the story. 
and explain to us what the moho is. And let's explain about different attempts to drill down right. deep into the Earth's crust for certain discoveries. And let's talk about this part of it. Well, you know, we, we've discovered through seismology that there is a, an anomalous region at the crust mantle boundary, the moho Rovasi, which is shortened to moho. And we know that it's anomalous because when we bounce seismic waves through it, it shows uh, valleys, uh, troughs, peaks and troughs, and basically what looks like either, well, areas of less density. Now, some of those areas may be filled with water, air, magma, all three in different areas. But this is this is a worldwide look, uh, um, structure, 20 miles down mm-hmm. and uh, beneath the continent and 11 miles under, under the sea. Under the sea. And there's always it's going to be somebody wondering if there's a military application to it. The U.S. Navy tried to drill to it and failed. They got almost there and they quit. Mm-hmm. The Russians tried to drill to it and they quit, supposedly. But it's an, it's an area of immense pressure. And the interesting thing is that all over the world there are large cavern systems that constantly blow air. There are huge volumes of air that constantly pour out of these caves, like Blowing Cave in Arkansas, uh, Lechiguilla in New Mexico, um, but, you know, some of the big caves in Vietnam and other places, there are always huge, vast amounts of air pouring out of these caverns. Well, where's the air coming from? You know, that mm-hmm. air has to come from somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my general feeling is it's probably come from the Moho. I'm not sure how it's being produced. Maybe it's being produced by heat in, in re- reaction with subterranean water. But somehow it's coming about and it's pouring out. Now, where you have... Uh, huge amounts of air moving and oxygen, you know, you, you're going to, and, and, and water, you're going to have life. And where you have bacteria, you're going to have other forms of life because there's always stuff that feeds off of bacteria. And now it's been postulated as many as 90% of all the bacteria on earth may be subterranean. Well, they find new uh, subterranean bacteria every year and they also find other life forms every year. In caves and caverns. And, and just the network of fungus alone. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And and so, you know, um, we're talking about, we barely know anything about the surface of our planet, much less what's under the surface. You know, we we, we find new discoveries all the time here on the surface. And then we yeah. go into the, into the oceans, the, the depths of the oceans where a lot of UFOs come from. Yes, the USOs. Um, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the, the earth itself, we, we can only go down so far because the pressure gets to be so great. And again, the whole idea of the elevated pressure adapting to greater pressure seems to tie in with a lot of these anomalous life forms. They seem to exhibit the characteristics of something that originates in a realm of, of higher density or higher pressure. What about the anomalies of the poles? The anomalies of the poles. Well, you know, I, I do talk about that in my book. Mm-hmm. I, I have a chapter on that, and that there there is an indication that there is something anomalous about the poles. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some things that just don't add up in terms of of uh, next time you see this plant in your backyard, don't cut it down because this is the best natural painkiller you'll ever find. Some people even compare it to morphine. No. That marijuana, Ron? No. Oh. Mysteries of weather and um, encounters that people have had and UFO activity over the poles and things of this nature. Now, does this mean that the Earth is a geode? Or does it just mean that there's entrances there to these subterranean areas? Mm-hmm. Or 
could it be that there's some sort of wormhole type thing going on that ties into the gravitational field of the earth? We really don't know. Whoever knows is probably not going to tell us. Well, and then there was supposedly, you know, during the Hitler years, a lot of interest in Antarctica. Right. And supposedly um, a base that was um, established in Antarctica. Right. He was fascinated with Antarctica and whatever life forms were there. Or... Well, yeah, that, that's a rumor. But it's a very it's a good rumor. rumor. It's and, a good rumor. It is because, you know, just recently they discovered that the body found you know, in the bunker was not Hitler. Right. It was a female by, by DNA analysis. So everybody said, well, he, well Hitler died in, in the in the bunker. Well, no, he didn't, apparently. Now, will they rewrite the history books? I doubt it. Probably but, not going to be written. But nonetheless, he, there have been some very interesting yes. um, bits of evidence having to do with certain missing submarines, submarines well, that went off exactly. the radar and... and, and some were never found. Now, a, few right. were, a few were found off the coast of Argentina. Right. And they were the, the people on board were captured. But more were not found, and right. they were the ones that were supposedly sent to Antarctica. Right. Now, there were German officials who made some statements to the effect that they were working on a base there. Yes. And then they had discovered something fantastic. They had discovered a subterranean realm, basically, yes. that, you know, where everything was totally different than it is here on the surface. And allegedly, Admiral Byrd yes. went down there. Mm-hmm. And came back so shaken yes. that he said, "We have to basically we have to nuke it till it closes. If we don't, we're going to be overwhelmed. There's a superior technology there." And he was taken aside and said, "You know, we're not going to talk about that." Hmm. And he kind of kind of backed off the statement. Now there are people now who say, "Well, that didn't happen." Well, that's always the case. But you know, for decades and decades, people remember hearing this and seeing this. And there are people that still remember seeing the newsreel that he sent back, where he flew beyond the poles. Right. And saw something strange in terms of a, a landscape that should not have been there. Mm-hmm. So again, what are we talking about? Is are we talking about, you know, is is the Earth a geode? Well, it doesn't tie in well with the ideas of how gravity works and how our electromagnetic field is. Yes, formed. but they just the new information on gravity, which is something I was told by some beings yeah. uh, quite a long time ago, was that gravity is not what we thought it is. It isn't right. a one way force; it's a two way force that creates in places of equilibrium within gravity moving both directions. And it and it warps space and time around itself. Yes. So if we're talking about something that is warping space and time, you might be able to create what's what's known as a space time bubble. Mm-hmm. Could that be what the hollow earth actually is? Could it be a space-time bubble? In other words, the earth is built like we think it is, and it generates the electromagnetic field. But could there be some other way to access a space-time bubble that is also created by the gravitational field of the earth? Mm -hmm. I mean, these are all just ideas, but, I mean, they seem to be valid. At least right. to consider and talk about. Yes. Okay. So we have even in cave art um, extraterrestrial presence. What appears to be extraterrestrial. That's right. what we've labeled them as thus right. far. Right. And uh, I had a conversation with a man named uh, Ken Cherry, who's written a book more with the military um, and, uh, and intelligence community implications of right. having these underground ET species that are actually, you know, native. Yeah. And so let's talk about that from your point of view. Well, I think that. There is evidence that there's somebody else here with us, and they've always been here. You talk about cave art, you know. That's why I, I say yeah, well, you know, people think that all these mysteries are new. You know, UFOs coming from you know Alpha Centauri. Well, no, they've been here ever since people could record them being here. Aboriginals, the one Gina. Right. Mm-hmm. Even in uh, some of the, the caverns in France, mm-hmm. there's there's pictures which look like blind saucers. I mean, I don't know what else the cavemen could have been 
attempted to convey. It's just there were no animals running around that looked like that. So, you know, there there are a lot of uh, indications that we've never been alone. Now, my concern here with with these these types of things is these are the humanoid species we're right, speaking of. Yeah, right. I think I think we're talking about more than one species. Mm-hmm. I think there are species that are are indigenous that are kind of indifferent to us. And by that, I mean, they've probably advanced so far by now that it, the only thing they see us as is a nuisance, maybe. Mm. And the reason I say that is because if, for instance, there were a reptilian species which basically evolved, almost looked totally human, over time they would. Or if there were other species that had been here that had evolved to a higher state uh, of you know technological advancement, they could have had their singularity a long time ago. Uh, what an intriguing conversation. And hopefully people will be able to still sleep well tonight Thank after you. this one. Because the reality is, it's always been there. It always has We've been. always been living side by side. The reality is what you look at day in and day out around you in your life, that's your life. We just have to wake up. That's to what's their life. Going on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Again, Michael's intriguing book is titled Caverns, Cauldrons, and Concealed Creatures, which you can find through major booksellers. You can also learn a lot more about his work by visiting his website at gravedistractions.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Okay, we're going to take a jump to... uh um, a piece called Quantum Jumps, plural. Okay, let me get there. What do we understand about quantum reality? You are not your body or your situation, yet instead are pure energy and consciousness. You exist in an interconnected holographic multiverse in which you are jumping from one parallel universe to another with every choice you make, living the life of your dreams. Join Cynthia Sue Larson in exploring the place where science comes together with imagination in unlimited possibility. Are we close to being there, honey? Just a moment. Okay, there we go. Here we go. This is 37 minutes, everybody. Here we go, as Rama says. I've got a degree in physics from UC Berkeley, and I've had a lifelong fascination with the true nature of reality and I actually believe that's probably what propelled me to have some of the experiences that I had which 
demonstrated that there are sometimes these remarkable shifts in reality that can occur. And that what we call quantum jumps are not just something that happens on the quantum so-called scale, but they can happen at any level of physical reality. I had a fairly normal stretch of time in my life when I was doing normal research. I had a job in the banking industry. When things started changing was around 1994 when I started really noticing remarkable changes in reality that was following a kundalini awakening, which was a change in my inner energy. It seemed like just being flooded with so much energy that it was incredible. And sometimes seeing so much light, I felt blinded even with my eyes shut. There was so much light around me during it. And then also after, I was noticing that I'd sometimes be spontaneously aware of things happening in remote locations, like spontaneous remote viewing, or 360-degree vision that I can see all the way around me at quite a distance and outside the walls of the house. So it was really startling. And then ever since then, I've had the ability at times to have exactly the same experience again. I didn't test it so much by doing those kinds of things of going to see if what I saw was real, but... My daughters would try to sneak up on me, and they never could, especially after that. It was just impossible because I could I could see them before they got to me. <laughs> I've had other things happen where if I'm daydreaming, I've been observed in two locations. I know I'm in one place where I'm daydreaming, but I'm observed somewhere else. So there's a bilocation that can occur. I'll give you an example of one morning when my daughters were quite young, I, I needed to go wake them up each morning so they'd go to school. So I And they were too small to open the curtain in their room. It was too heavy. So I would go down the hall, open. Well, I'd turn the light on, and I'd walk to the window, and I'd say, good morning, girls. And I'd open this very heavy curtain that would then go up. And one morning, it was a cold morning. I didn't want to get out of bed right away. And I was still thinking about dreams and daydreaming a little bit. And in my mind, I was daydreaming that I walked down the hall, turned on the light, said, good morning, girls, opened the curtain. I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if it was that easy? But then I hear noises from their room. And then they come running around the house. And they're like, mom, mom, where are you? And mom, what are you doing back in bed? <laughs> I never got out of bed. <laughs> and I said, what? What do you mean? You just saw me? And they said, yes. I said, where was I? And they said, in our room. And I, I, that, now I'm jumping out of bed and I'm running to go see what happened. And the light is on. The, the window curtain is open. And nobody else could have done that. It, would, it only could have been me. And I know I didn't. So I, was, I experienced that I'm in bed. They experienced I was there. So that was what a bilocation felt like. And for me, daydreaming and just sort of wishing I was there. The other time it happened, I was daydreaming and wishing I was somewhere. And someone saw me there. So I've done this twice, uh, so, and it, it feels great. It's just feeling like, ah, I wish I could be there, and then guess what? Maybe you are. So after this experience happened, I immediately looked up to see what could explain these kind of experiences, and I found out that throughout history, uh, people have had these kinds of experiences. It's really quite normal, and it's something that is considered um, often something that's typical for a shaman or someone who is 
the healer for a community because people who have that much energy can help to be a conduit for changes in reality. And so that really got my attention about how you can change reality or how all of us do that. For me, the, the most interesting thing that, that I learned about physics was quantum physics at UC Berkeley. I loved my classes uh, in that subject matter. And I, after my Kundalini awakening, I came to realize that a lot of the answer to what is the nature of reality seems to be held in the mysteries of quantum physics, which although we can work out the mathematics and we can solve equations and we can even build atomic bombs and nuclear power plants, we don't exactly think the way quantum physics um, shows us that the world really operates. And what's so wonderful and mysterious about the quantum physics and quantum mechanics is that when we look to see what are these building blocks of matter, we find that at the very center of um, the very smallest inseparable indivisible particle, which would be like an electron, if you can't get any smaller than that, then that qualifies as a quantum particle. Those little electrons can actually be observed to be in one place, and then they it's like they vanish. Um, they can change an energy's level and show up instantly somewhere else. And they do other things also. They can be connected with one another, entangled, and when one is affected and its spin is up and the other one's spin is down, um, if you observe one, as soon as you make an observation on one that's entangled with another, they both flip at the same time. These entanglements are now being tested in laboratory conditions around the world as people are building quantum computers. There's been a race, like a gold rush, to, to see how fast we can find this information and these new technologies. So diamonds and large things that you can observe in your hands are being entangled. They're showing entanglements that are holding together at greater and greater distances. So we can tell, obviously, throughout the universe, there can be an entanglement with one particle right here and another particle in an entirely different galaxy great distances away. So there seems to be no limitation on the distance. When we look at space and time, then we start recognizing that humans have a unique experience with space and time. And what we think is true for everything may not be true for everything, but may more be a facet of our humanity in the way that we are set up to observe reality. The Mandela effect is a term that was coined in the year 2010 by a blogger, Fiona Broom. And she and a bunch of people noticed that they remembered that the gentleman named Nelson Mandela from South Africa had died before 2010. They were all surprised and glad that he was alive, but really surprised because they remembered clearly that he had previously died. So this was the first time that the idea of a whole bunch of people remembering something differently really um, caught hold, and it became very popular on Reddit, the, that website, as well as the Mandela Effect website that Fiona Broom started. And actually, this is a phenomenon that I've been tracking since the 1990s. It's what I would call reality shift, and that was a term that was coined by PMH Atwater, 
when she wrote an earlier book that I didn't know about at the time. So I, I found that the word reality shift seemed to explain that there are a bunch of people that notice someone died and now they're alive again. I noticed Larry Hagman, and I wrote about him in my book, Reality Shifts. He's an actor from the TV show Dallas. So I described that um, lots of people noticed he had died and that he was alive again. It's a phenomenon that's very interesting because the closer you are to uh, Larry Hagman or Nelson Mandela, the less likely you are to notice that particular individual had died and then they come alive again. It's more likely to happen when it's someone that you don't see very often. You don't really think about them much. They're on the periphery of your awareness. They're not the focal point. They're off to the side. So you know about them. And then when you hear about it, it's like, wow, that's big. So that was the beginning of this Mandela effect. It has now exploded in terms of lots of other examples, books, movies, you name it, products, <laughs> all kinds of things. So when it comes to things like we notice products changing, that can be confusing uh, because, of course, first you want to make sure, was it really some kind of a change? Did the company make a change? Once you eliminate that possibility, then the only thing left is um, that when, when it's, you're the one that noticed the change, um, unless you think you're going crazy or getting forgetful, usually this is not the case. Usually people that notice these things are very observant. They're getting an opportunity to experience these alternate histories. And what's happening is one group of people would notice it, like with Nelson Mandela, the ones who don't live in South Africa, like myself and others, they remember he died when he was in, incarcerated. He was still in jail. And it seemed such a tragedy. It just seemed, it seemed very sad. And then there was a, a big um, hullabaloo. There were lots of uh, things going on with his widow and the government and trying to work things out with the estate. Anyway, it's not confabulation, which is what some people say the Mandela effect is. They say, well, you're just making this up. But why would so many people make that up? As far as how it works, I don't know. And so I'm not going to just say like, oh, I've got a theory that explains everything. I, instead, I'm, look, I'm more like a biologist back when biologists would travel the world to, to see if they could categorize what kind of birds and animals they're observing. Just like when Charles Darwin is on the Beagle, that, that ship, and he's traveling across the world. That's what I've been doing with these reality shift examples. So I'm still gathering information, but it's possible that what we're looking at is something that's similar to a holographic multiverse. So there's a there's a holographic component where everything is connected and it's one, like the pages in a book. Um, but they're always each page might signify another parallel reality, which could be side by side by side. And sometimes you can jump from one page to another. Where everybody else is, that gets to the question of consciousness and how can each of us hold ideas that might be from some other reality, then we need to start taking a look at what some people might call are these anomalous experiences. But to me, I think they're pretty common experiences. And I think we're seeing more evidence of this sort of quantum behavior in all of biology, in all of life. There are an infinity of possibilities that at every moment we make a choice, we're looking at that and feeling that. And so people who've had near-death experiences or are lucid dreamers or have had a kundalini experience, they're much more keenly aware of this process and they can they can feel when they're in it. And it's, it's pretty remarkable because you can tell that there's a reality that's always been there. It's not so much that you're creating it or calling it to you. 
It's more that you are recognizing that the, the truth of who you are is consciousness. And as consciousness, you're capable of making that jump into any reality, which sounds incredible. But people who've come back from being dead will sometimes report that's exactly what they did. And that's how they were able to become fully healed when they were extremely sick before. Actually, most of us do experience these quantum jumps and we don't think much of it when it happens. Sometimes we are just happy that it happens. And I'm thinking right now of the example where if you need to wake up and you have trouble waking up and you will yourself to get out of bed on a cold morning, that willpower, that moment uh, is an example of it. That doesn't sound very impressive, I know. And then one that's a little bit more impressive, but still not that impressive. So it's easy. These are little baby step quantum jumps. <laughs> Another good one that's easy to do is if you're starting to catch it cold and you can tell yourself, I can't get sick today. And I think we've all had that experience where it's like, no, this is not happening. I have to stay well today. And then you notice after I thought that, I felt fine. A lot of people have that experience. And then one that's scientifically proven in the laboratories right now is where you know for sure that you did not get a good night's sleep. Maybe there was a neighbor fighting or lots of noise, traffic accidents, something going on that was so noisy there's no way you got a good night's sleep. It was the worst night's sleep ever. In the morning, all you need to do is keep telling yourself over and over and over again until you start believing it. I had a wonderful night's sleep last night. And you just keep repeating that, just starting to believe it, convince yourself then what's scientifically proven is that you will behave on all sorts of cognitive tests, physical tests, just the same as if you'd had that good night's sleep, and you'll feel better. So these are things that are easy. On the other extreme, you know, because these I, I like to look at the entire bandwidth, the whole breadth and depth of it. At the other extreme, it's going to start sounding crazy. I've, I've heard from so many people that have instantaneously been teleported to safety when they've been in an accident, when their car is about to crash. They don't know what happened, but somehow they got thrown clear of the vehicle. It's as if they went right through it. Or maybe um, the, the oncoming vehicle never hit their car, but now is on the other side. And there never was an impact, never was a collision. This is basically quantum tunneling, and it's happening with a Mack truck and a car. You know, vehicles that weigh thousands and thousands of kilograms. It is extremely heavy, and so there's no way to explain that. And these things happen a lot. There are lots and lots of examples of that, as well as instantaneous healing of everything from broken bones, which are not supposed to heal instantly, to cancer going away. When we look at what the healers are doing, they're able to enter a dream with their client or with a person. When I say dream, that's recognizing that all of reality is like a dream. And this is what you hear if you study the Upanishads and some Indian writing. They'll tell you reality is a dream. So when you enter the dream with someone, then you share that and you can enter the dream and help the person find that, that dream reality where they are healthy. And that's, that is exactly what healers are able to do is to go there with someone. And then when they come back on that journey and it might be with drumming or it might be with chanting, these are what indigenous peoples the world over have used as a, these are ancient technologies uh, that are very effective at implementing quantum jumps. I think the reason most people don't think that these things are happening or don't think they're observing them is primarily because they don't believe it's possible. That's the first thing. And secondly, um, there's 
an open-mindedness issue because when once you believe, well, it's possible, then you need to even be even more open-minded so that those kind of experiences could happen. You wouldn't think it would make a difference, but it really does because our, our brains and our minds are set up to observe what we train ourselves to look for. And if we're not looking for these kinds of quantum jumps, reality shifts, Mandela effects, then we don't really notice them. Or we assume, first of all, that we've made a mistake. We think, well, maybe I'm misremembering that. Uh, maybe there's some reason that when I talk about my childhood with my family, they tell a story that I know didn't happen, and they, they seem so convinced it did. We just dismiss those signs and those pieces of evidence that would suggest that we're all experiencing alternate histories, and that it's quite normal. So when, when people assume that we're just going through, like watching a movie on the screen, and we want the illusion that that movie is flowing evenly, and it's just as good as real life. Actually, we're watching frames in a movie flashing, so it's a lot more like uh, stair steps, like taking step by step by step by step. I believe that's also what nature is doing. And so we'll be able to start seeing more evidence of it by recognizing that this can and does happen. And we're seeing things that I would expect to find, such as when scientists have a bias to, to begin with, to expect a certain result, that's the result they tend to get. So, um, some of our Nobel-winning scientists are noticing that too. They, they tend to think that there's um, some sort of observer bias, um, but I'm considering it's a deeper problem that actually we can change results just by expecting something different, and we can do that on any scale. I like people who are skeptical about this because I, I think that's good to be skeptical, to be a good skeptic and open-minded, but questioning, like, okay, this doesn't make any sense. This is not what I learned. So how can this possibly be true? And for them, I would suggest looking at placebo studies. Placebo is a word that means I shall please. And in World War II, there were doctors in England that were running out of medication. And so they would basically give the soldiers who were in a great deal of pain um, an injection with just water and some salt in it. So it's just a saline solution. And they would notice in large numbers of people, they would feel better. The doctors wanted to do something. When they run out of medicine on the front line, that's a terrible feeling. So this is why, if you're wondering, well, that sounds unethical. Why would doctors do that? That's why. And right now, in surveys that are conducted across all of the hospitals in America, a majority of doctors absolutely will prescribe placebos for their patients because sometimes they don't have anything that they know for sure will work. And so they, they say, well, take this. We think it will help. And the very fact that that's happening, that there's this placebo effect, which benefits some like 20 to 30% of the people that take it. And in fact, that number is going up. It's been increasing. So when you look at the placebo effect, and it's not just sugar pills and salt solution injections, it's also placebo surgery. And just sometimes instruction given from a person to someone taking a test, you've got this, you're going to do great the test score will go up 30%. So we're typically seeing about a 30% improvement. Then of people like myself who have faith in the placebo effect or faith in a greater power, then you can get results up to 70%. 70%. And that is so much more than pretty much any other pharmaceutical 
can claim. That's what I invite skeptics to look at and study. Take a look at what Harvard is doing with their placebo research center because skeptics often want to know, where can I go to look at a university or someone I can trust to see what kind of results they're getting? Someone who's doing real studies, they're not falsifying results, they're using a, a gold standard or a platinum standard with with regard to um, double-blind studies, and that would be Harvard and other universities doing similar work. Each of us is um, basically the center of our universe, and we do come together so we can feel the consciousness of others with us, but we're capable of actually experiencing almost anything that we totally believe in. And if people doubt this and they say, well, that can't be right because otherwise I would have won the lottery and so on and so forth, that gets into the energy body again. And the fact that we're not totally in our brains as much as people wish they were, uh, we think with our hearts, we think with our guts. And when you bring this whole thing together, then you'll start noticing you've got subconscious beliefs and you've got subconscious thoughts that may be much more powerful than anything you think that you want. So when you're choosing a reality that you want to go into, then you're you're acting as if. This is something that our American psychologist William James talked about, and you can absolutely program it like a GPS, exactly, just knowing that if, if I was successful, then I would need to have this done, I would need to be saying this, I would need to wear this and have these friends and do these things. And so if you start doing all of that, then you can definitely start moving into that reality. We can have very confusing beliefs about something, such as money. And I wrote a book about that, High Energy Money, so to help people understand what those kind of thoughts might be that could be tripping them up so they could take a look at the thought and then reverse it. Usually if you've got something that's holding you back, like money is evil, you might as well believe the opposite of that because it's just a random belief. It doesn't mean it's true to just believe, like, ah, oh, money is evil. So you can flip that one around and say money helps us do good things in the world. Money can be the key to um, sharing energy with others. So it's a way of setting yourself free from judging things in ways that are more representative of our own shadow side than what's really so-called out there. This is a good question. How does consciousness relate to the material world? Well, what I've noticed is that consciousness um, seems to be preeminent. It's the, it's the dominant thing. It's always there. And at least that's my observation because I am consciousness. So that's my human experience. I don't know what it's like to not be conscious. but we And it's one of those things, how do you define consciousness? That's important to know what the description of it is before you start looking at how does it interact with matter. And the truth is, that's still an open question. So even the experts in the field of consciousness are arguing about what exactly is it, which is not where physicists wanted to go. They were hoping that physics could be something that's completely measurable. The idea of consciousness is not measurable. There's no way to predict the presence, absence, or change in consciousness in any given experiment. Yet now with the observer, consciousness has entered the picture. Consciousness is more than the neurons. So when we try to do the neuron mapping like they're doing and they can map the brain and the networks and then supposedly we should know everything, but we don't. It's it's more like seeing that you can see the roads but you don't know the traffic patterns and you don't understand why things are happening the way they do. 
and memories are not stored in a place. It's not like, oh, there's the neuron that stored that memory. They move around. So when we look at the way the brain functions, it's it's very disappointing in terms of finding a, a way to lock consciousness into matter that's, that has not succeeded. The reason science cannot prove that consciousness is produced by the brain is what we don't know how to measure consciousness. And science can only handle what it can predict. It can only, which means you have to be able to measure something. You have to be able to tell if it's there, if it's changing, if it's gone. And if you can't do that, we still can't do that with consciousness. We rely entirely upon asking someone, do you feel conscious? And we can look at things like, are they, are they awake? Or are they asleep? That kind of thing. We can look at brainwave states. We can measure some things, but it doesn't really get to the heart of the issue. That's not surprising to people who have been meditating for centuries, like the Tibetan Buddhists. They understand consciousness at a different level because they're going into it through meditation and direct experience. So I think, I think that's more the right way to explore this. What I'm noticing about material world and consciousness is that, um, to the degree that we believe the material world is real, this is really important. We buy into that. We start thinking, like, okay, this is real. Gravity works. My, my world is the way I think it is, and my assumptions are true. We're social animals, so we collectively share consciousness. And this is a big idea, too. How is consciousness something that sometimes we feel that we have a collaborative feeling? Where does this feeling of all of these emotions, like love and these feelings of uh, forgiveness that we have or gratitude. These are very powerful emotions. So when we combine our consciousness with our family, our friends, our colleagues, and we don't want to go too far away from what we know everybody would agree with, um, then we're kind of anchored down to a certain level of what's possible. We can let go of that when we're in a life or death situation or when we just want to explore consciousness through something like lucid dreaming or meditation, then and only then can you actually make that big jump to something else. What's really happening is you're stepping outside of the situation. So it's what always happens when you do a quantum jump is recognizing that you are consciousness. What we tend to do is get stuck in believing we're in a situation, like we have a problem, that person won't let us do something, or something bad happened, and we think we're in this little world and to make a quantum jump we need to step back you need to recognize that you are consciousness and that you're observing all this you have feelings you have thoughts but you're not your thoughts and you're not your feelings so it's becoming mindful and then becoming energized and then the third step is exactly that it's just choose where you want to go next and accept that as the dream that you wish to live that's that's the dream you want to come true so the most important thing to do when you are going on the path, this journey of reality shifting and quantum jumping, I believe, is to become more spiritual, actually, <laughs> to become a better person. It's absolutely important to do that, to be more kind, because what happens if you don't do that is you're disregarding some of yourself, and it's going to pull you off course absolutely every time. So um, even if you're selfish and you think, I just want good, I want a good life, I want a good material world, I don't care about spirituality, you can try it that way. I mean, I don't recommend anybody try it that way because things tend to go, I believe and I've seen things go wrong because what happens is that those parts of ourselves that are subconscious, that are maybe greedy um, and so forth, if you haven't come to a place of acceptance and forgiveness for yourself and others, you'll be... Uh, 
going through the same cycles of events and they're usually not good. So it's, you need to clean things up. One way, to, as we were talking about how to make that quantum jump, is to step back. And one way to instantly step back is to feel an emotion such as gratitude. Because instantly then we, um, you can feel it when you're feeling true gratitude. It's it's just this amazing experience for me. It, it just feels like my, I can feel my energy expanding. I feel more at peace. Uh, the things that have been troubling me seem like they're not so important. There's a tremendous change that occurs energetically, as well as with the focus of my attention, which goes from, you know, usually being humans, we're looking at what's wrong, what's not going right, what's the thing that's a little bit off right now. We tend to focus on that. But instead, by bringing your attention back to what's really good, what are the blessings, what are the things that mean the most to us that we're grateful for, then we get this boost of energy and also boost of, of the focus. It definitely brings us back on track. And forgiveness does this too. It, some, some people have trouble with forgiveness, but if you can do it, that's a good one. Forgive yourself and forgive others. Forgiveness can be easier when you recognize, like in A Course of Miracles, that there's nothing to it, that everybody is already a pure being of consciousness and a pure being of light and love, and that's who we really are. And we tend to forget that. So sometimes people have trouble really feeling like, really? That, that seems, that can be a stretch for some people to, to go that far. But if you can do it, it's wonderful because the benefit is phenomenal <laughs> because what happens when we don't forgive, we don't notice that we're getting pulled down with these negative feelings of something went wrong and if only that hadn't happened, if only they didn't do that. But when you let go of it, it's, it's also very expansive to go into forgiveness and gratitude and love. Those are very powerful. One thing we can do is putting yourself back into the center of the story because sometimes we get caught thinking we're a victim or we think something has happened to us. And the way to break free of that, it's basically a drama triangle because then you it's, it's just playing games and pretending that you're wearing the role of victim and someone else is the villain and there might be a rescuer. But when you realize that doesn't make any sense, I'm going to retrain my subconscious that I can do whatever I want to do. I can be the hero in my own story, but not the kind of hero where I'm fighting evil, um, just recognizing that I can bring about changes that I want to see in the world. I can be that change in the world. And when, when you really feel like you're doing what you love, then you can come fully alive and you'll find people that are excited to be with you doing that too. This idea of shifting the earth with um, shared intent, with shared consciousness, and the reason I keep calling it dreaming is because when we think intention, we tend to stay in our heads. When we dream, we dream with our fullness of being. And then we, in our dreams, we can take action, which we can then feel which and give voice to, and then we can think. And so that's the way to bring about the, the biggest changes that we need to make. And so sharing a dream is actually the way to transform the world. And sharing a positive dream, looking at how good things can get, which is a question that I like to leave open-ended so we don't assume that we know what it is. And that way you know that good can can prevail, that good will, will be there. And it matches the fact that we live in such a fine-tuned universe right now, which is ridiculously unlikely. So some people say this is proof that God exists, 
And I tend to think so, too. I also think that we can definitely see evidence in that, that we're already winning against whatever may seem like it's impossible or unsolvable or too difficult or too evil. The idea that what resists persists is is really central to this idea of dreaming a new reality. If you're fighting something, it seems like it gets stronger or it hangs on. In America, we have a war on drugs that never seems to end. We have so many wars, so many conflicts, and it seems like every time we look around, there's a new enemy. Um, but that's not really the way to move forward in a positive manner. The way to move forward positively is to find what you are grateful for, what you love, and to bring more of that into being. So it's very obvious, but it's something that I think we're learning, and this is part of that global awakening right now. I believe we do have free will, but then this comes back to that question of consciousness and who am I, which is like the ultimate question. So on some levels, there's if I factor in the infinite, eternal part of myself, that was here before I was born, that will be here after I die, then that part of me has an awareness of what's going on that to me in my day-to-day life might feel like I'm living a, a path of fate or something, like things are meant to be a certain way. But we definitely do experience free will every time we can make a choice and choose, like all of these realities exist, let's try that one, then we can give it a try. And when it comes to neuroscience, what scientists are noticing strangely is gets back to that question of time because we're noticing sometimes um, that we've made a decision before we've even felt the input from to our senses, which seems impossible. But as far as my own experience, I, I feel like we do have free will and that it matters. I think that's the most important thing right now for us as humans to deal with all the problems on the planet and to help each other is to recognize the level of expansiveness that we can attain and the the way that we can play with these different realities and also share consciousness. As we were talking about healing someone else and sharing a dream, we can pull each other up by sharing positive dreams with one another. And that can be extremely empowering and can pull us out of things that look impossible. We don't live in a linear timeline at all. I think that is one of the biggest things for people to realize is that you're able to see what you might call a miracle in a moment. You know, anything could happen. And to recognize that there's always a possibility for phenomenal transformation. And people who have been aware of this, and even if you're skeptical, you can still get this to work. So next time you're in a difficult situation, Maybe the car is out of gas or you're stranded or you have no money or you lost your purse, whatever happened, some sort of bad news. Just take a moment, relax, meditate, center yourself, breathe, and then just imagine, well, how good could this get? And imagine, just like it's a dream, like you're going into that daydream and you're going to walk into that reality. And so many people have had phenomenal success with doing exactly that. And I share stories about this in, in my book, Quantum Jumps, because it happens to so many people. And even if you're skeptical, even if you think, well, that's ridiculous. How could this possibly work? This is impossible. The car's out of gas. My wallet's gone. Whatever. You know, they've told me no. They said they lost my order. Whatever happened. But if you just imagine, well, what if there's just some chance that maybe things are okay? Just a slim chance somehow. Just believe in it. Dream it. And... The dreaming is so important, again, because you're you're activating the fullness of your being. The, the trouble that some people have with intention is they're just thinking with their heads, and that doesn't work. 
So you have to really get a full embodiment of it, of, of all of you. People who feel like they're absolutely stuck, that they are perfect proof of this process in action. That's true. And it's true for all of us. You know, anybody who is a human right now, and that's me too. You know, nobody's perfect. We all get to some point where we believe like, well, this is, this is too much or this is too difficult. But I, at least I know on some level that that's not really true. It's just that I've grown up in a society, on a world, on a planet where that's been the prevailing belief so far. But I believe that that's changing right now and more and more people are waking up. Okay, that's beautiful. And we're going to go right into something that Penny pulled for us. It's called A Child's Christmas in Wales, A Story. And this is about 19, almost 20 minutes. And that's what we're going to play. It's not the whole movie, but uh, Mm -hmm. you can find the whole movie. Um, let's see. I think you can go to YouTube, right? Yes, YouTube. A Child's Christmas in Wales. And the whole movie is less than an hour, but we're going to play 20 minutes right now. Okay? Mama's getting there. I can't open everything so quickly, otherwise the computer will crash. Well, we don't worry about that. that. No. Here we go. All right. Here we go. Commercial. Just clearing the commercial, everybody. One Christmas was so much like the other in those years around the Sea Town corner now. Out of all sound except the distant speaking of the voices. This is Dylan Thomas. Yeah. Thank you. A Child's Christmas in Wales. Out of all sound except the distant speaking of the voices I sometimes hear a moment before sleep, that I can never remember whether it snowed for six days and six nights when I was twelve, or whether it snowed for twelve days and twelve nights when I was six. Mm-hmm. All the Christmases roll down towards the two-tongued sea like a cold and headlong moon bundling down the sky that was our street. And they stop at the rim of the ice-edged, fish-freezing waves, and I plunge my hands in the snow and bring out whatever I can find. In goes my hand into that wool-white, bell-tongued ball of holidays resting at the rim of the carol-singing sea. And out come Mrs. Prothero and the fire. 
It was on the afternoon of the day of Christmas Eve, and I was in Mrs. Brothero's garden waiting for cats with her son, Jim. It was snowing. It was always snowing at Christmas. December, in my memory, as white as Lapland, although there were no reindeers. But there were cats, patient, cold, and callous, our hands wrapped in socks. We waited to snowball the cats. Sleek and long as jaguars and horrible whiskered, spitting and snarling, they would slide and sidle over the white back garden walls. And the lynx-eyed hunters, Jim and I, fur-capped and moccasined trappers from Hudson Bay off Mumbles Road, would hurl our deadly snowballs at the green of their eyes. The wise cats never appeared. We were so still, Eskimo-footed Arctic marksmen in the muffling silence of the eternal snows, eternal ever since Wednesday, that we never heard Mrs. Prothero's first cry from her igloo at the bottom of the garden. Or if we heard it at all, it was to us like the far-off challenge of our enemy and prey, the neighbor's polar cat. But soon the voice grew louder. Fire, cried Mrs. Prothero. And she beat the dinner gong. And we ran down the garden with the snowballs in our arms towards the house. And smoke indeed was pouring out of the dining room. And the gong was bombolating. And Mrs. Prothero was announcing ruin like a town crier in Pompeii. This was better than all the cats in Wales standing on the wall in a row. We bounded into the house laden with snowballs and stopped at the open door of the smoke-filled room. Something was burning, all right. Perhaps it was Mr. Prothero, who always slept there after midday dinner with a newspaper over his face. But he was standing in the middle of the room saying, A fine Christmas, and smacking at the smoke with a slipper. Call the fire brigade, cried Mrs. Prothero as she beat the gong. They won't be here, said Mr. Prothero. It's Christmas. There was no fire to be seen, only clouds of smoke, and Mr. Prothero standing in the middle of them, waving his slipper as though he were conducting. Do something, he said. And we threw all our snowballs into the smoke. I think we missed Mr. Prothero, and ran out of the house to the telephone box. Let's call the police as well, Jim said, and the ambulance. And Ernie Jenkins, he likes fires. But we only called the fire brigade. And soon the fire engine came, and three tall men in helmets brought a hose into the house, and Mr. Prothero got out just in time before they turned it on. Nobody could have had a noisier Christmas Eve. And when the fireman turned off the hose and was standing in the wet, smoky room, Jim's aunt, Miss Prothero, came downstairs and peered in at them. Jim and I waited very quietly to hear what she would say to them. She said the right thing, always. She looked at the three tall firemen in their shining helmets, standing among the smoke and cinders and dissolving snowballs, and she said, Would you like anything to read? Years and years ago, when I was a boy, when there were wolves in Wales and birds the color of red flannel petticoats whisked past the harp-shaped hills, when we sang and wallowed all night and day in caves that smelt like Sunday afternoons in damp front farmhouse parlors, and we chased with the jawbones of Deacons the English and the bears. 
Before the motor car, before the wheel, before the duchess faced horse, when we rode the daft and happy hills bareback, it snowed and it snowed. But here a small boy says, It snowed last year too. I made a snowman and my brother knocked it down and I knocked my brother down and then we had tea. But that was not the same snow, I say. Our snow was not only shaken from whitewashed buckets down the sky. It came shawling out of the ground and swam and drifted out of the arms and hands and bodies of the trees. Snow grew overnight on the roofs of the houses like a pure and grandfather moss. Minutely ivied the walls and settled on the postman opening the gate like a dumb, numb thunderstorm of white torn Christmas cards. Were there postmen then too? With sprinkling eyes and wind cherried noses on spread frozen feet, they crunched up to the doors and mittened on them manfully. But all that the children could hear was a ringing of bells. You mean that the postman went rat-a-tat-tat and the doors rang? I mean that the bells that the children could hear were inside them. I only hear thunder sometimes, never bells. There were church bells, too. Inside them? No, 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 in the bat black snow-white belfries tugged by bishops and storks. And they rang their tidings over the bandaged town, over the frozen foam of the powder and ice cream hills, over the crackling sea. It seemed that all the churches boomed for joy under my window, and the weathercocks crew for Christmas on our fence. Get back to the postman. They were just ordinary postmen, fond of walking and dogs and Christmas and the snow. They knocked on the doors with blue knuckles. Ours has got a black knocker. And then they stood on the white welcome mat in the little drifted porches and huffed and puffed, making ghosts with their breath and jogged from foot to foot like small boys wanting to go out. And then the presents... And then the presents after the Christmas box. And the cold postman with a rose on his button nose tingled down the tea tray slithered run of the chilly glinting hill. He went in his ice-boned boots like a man on fishmonger's slabs. He wagged his bag like a frozen camel's hump, dizzily turned the corner on one foot, and by God he was gone. Get back to the present. There were the useful presents, engulfing mufflers of the old coach days and mittens made for giant sloths, zebra scarves of a substance like silky gum that could be tug-of-war down to the galoshes, blinding tam-o'-shanters like patchwork tea cozies and bunny-suited busbies and balaclavas for victims of head-shrinking tribes. From aunts who always wore wool next to the skin, there were moustached and rasping vests that made you wonder why the aunts had any skin left at all. And once I had a little crocheted nose bag from an aunt now, alas, no longer whinnying with us. And picturesque books in which small boys, though warned with quotations not to, would skate on Farmer Giles's pond and did and drowned. And books that told me everything about the wasp, except why. Go on to the useless presents. 
bags of moist and many-colored jelly babies, and a folded flag and a false nose and a tram conductor's cap, and a machine that punched tickets and rang a bell, never a catapult. Once, by a mistake that no one could explain, a little hatchet. And a celluloid duck that made when you pressed it a most unduck-like sound, a mewing moo that an ambitious cat might make who wished to be a cow. And a painting book in which I could make the grass, the trees, the sea, and the animals any color I please. And still the dazzling sky-blue sheep are grazing in the red field under the rainbow were billed and pea-green birds. Hard-boiled, toffee, fudge, and all sorts, crunches, cracknel, humbugs, glaciers, marzipan, and butter Welsh for the Welsh. And troops of bright tin soldiers who, if they could not fight, could always run. And snakes and families and happy ladders and easy hobby games for little engineers, complete with instructions. Oh, easy for Leonardo. And a whistle to make the dogs bark, to wake up the old man next door, to make him beat on the wall with his stick, to shake our picture off the wall. And a packet of cigarettes. You put one in your mouth and you stood at the corner of the street and you waited for hours in vain for an old lady to scold you for smoking a cigarette and then with a smirk you ate it. And then it was breakfast under the balloons. Were there uncles like in our house? There are always uncles at Christmas, the same uncles. And on Christmas mornings, with dog-disturbing whistle and sugar fags, I would scour the swathed town for the news of the little world and find always a dead bird by the post office or the white deserted swings, perhaps a robin, all but one of his fires out. Men and women wading, scooping back from chapel with taproom noses and wind-busked cheeks, all albinos, huddled their stiff black jarring feathers against the irreligious snow. Mistletoe hung from the gas brackets in all the front parlors. There was sherry and walnuts and bottled beer and crackers by the dessert spoons. And cats in their fur abouts watched the fires. And the high-heaped fire spat, all ready for the chestnuts and the mulling pokers. Some few large men sat in the front parlors without their collars, uncles almost certainly, trying their new cigars, holding them out judiciously at arm's length, returning them to their mouths, coughing, then holding them out again as though waiting for the explosion. And some few small aunts, not wanted in the kitchen, nor anywhere else for that matter, sat on the very edges of their chairs, poised and brittle, afraid to break like faded cups and saucers. Not many of those mornings trod the piling streets. An old man, always form-bowlered, yellow-gloved, and at this time of year with spats of snow, would take his constitutional to the white bowling green and back as he would take it wet or fire on Christmas Day or Doomsday. Sometimes two hale young men with big pipes blazing, no overcoats and wind-blown scarves would trudge unspeaking down to the forlorn sea to work up an appetite to blow away the fumes, who knows, to walk into the waves until nothing of them was left but the two curling smoke clouds of their inextinguishable briars. 
Then I would be slap-dashing home, the gravy smell of the dinners of others, the bird smell, the brandy, the pudding and mince coiling up to my nostrils, when out of a snow-clogged side lane would come a boy the spit of myself with a pink-tipped cigarette and the violet past of a black eye, cocky as a bullfinch, leering all to himself. I hated him on sight and sound and would be about to put my dog whistle to my lips and blow him off the face of Christmas when suddenly he, with a violet wink, put his whistle to his lips and blew so stridently, so high, so exquisitely loud that gobbling faces their cheek bulged with goose would press against their tinseled windows the whole length of the white echoing street. For dinner, we had turkey and blazing pudding. And after dinner, the uncles sat in front of the fire, loosened all buttons, put their large, moist hands over their watch chains, groaned a little, and slept. Mothers, aunts, and sisters scuttled to and fro, bearing tureens. Aunt Bessie, who had already been frightened twice by a clockwork mouse, whimpered at the sideboard and had some elderberry wine. The dog was sick. Auntie Dursley had to have three aspirins, but Auntie Hannah, who liked port, stood in the middle of the snowbound backyard, singing like a big-bosomed thrush. I would blow up balloons to see how big they would blow up to, and then when they burst, which they all did, the uncles jumped and rumbled. In the rich and heavy afternoon, the uncles breathing like dolphins and the snow descending, I would sit among festoons and Chinese lanterns and nibble dates and try to make a model man-of-war following the instructions for little engineers and produce what might be mistaken for a sea-going tranker. Or I would go out, my bright new boots squeaking into the white world, onto the seaward hill, to call on Jim and Dan and Jack, and to pad through the still streets, leaving huge, deep footprints on the hidden pavements. I bet people will think they've been hippos. What did you do if I saw a hippo coming down our street? I'd go like this, bang! I'd throw him over the railings and roll him down the hill, and then I'd tickle him under the ear and he'd wag his tail. What would you do if you saw two hippos? Iron flanked and bellowing he hippos clanked and battered through the scudding snow towards us as we passed Mr. Daniel's house. Let's post Mr. Daniel a snowball through his letterbox. Let's write things in the snow. Let's write Mr. Daniel looks like a spaniel all over his lawn. Ah. Well, we walked on the white shore. Can the fishes see it snowing? The silent one-clouded heavens drifted onto the sea. Now we were snow-blind travelers lost on the north hills, and vast dew-lapped dogs with flasks round their necks ambled and shambled up to us, baying excelsior. We returned home through the poor streets, where only a few children fumbled with bare red fingers in the wheel-rutted snow, and cat called after us, their voices fading away as we trudged uphill into the cries of the dock birds and the hooting of ships out in the whirling bay. And then at tea, the recovered uncles would be jolly, and the ice cake loomed in the center of the table like a marble grave. Auntie Hannah laced her tea with rum, because it was only once a year. Bring out the tall tales now, that we told by the fire as the gaslight bubbled like a diver. 
Ghosts wooed like owls in the long nights when I dared not look over my shoulder. Animals lurked in the cubbyhole under the stairs where the gas meter ticked. And I remember that we went singing carols once when there wasn't the shaving of a moon to light the flying streets. At the end of a long road was a drive that led to a large house. And we stumbled up the darkness of the drive that night, each one of us afraid, each one holding a stone in his hand in case and all of us too brave to say a word. The wind through the trees made noises as of old and unpleasant and maybe web-footed men wheezing in caves. We reached the black bulk of the house. What shall we give them? Hark the herald? No, Jack said. Good King Winslow. I'll count three. One, two, Three, and we began to sing, our voices high and seemingly distant in the snow-felted darkness round the house that was occupied by nobody we knew. We stood close together near the dark door. Good King Wenceslas last looked out on the feast of Stephen. And then a small, dry voice, like the voice of someone who has not spoken for a long time, joined our singing. A small, dry, eggshell voice from the other side of the door. A small, dry voice through the keyhole. And when we stopped running, we were outside our house. The front room was lovely. Balloons floated under the hot water bottle, gulping gas. Everything was good again and shone over the town. Perhaps it was a ghost, Jim said. Perhaps it was Trolls, Dan said, who was always reading. Let's go in and see if there's any jelly left, Jack said. And we did that. Always on Christmas night, there was music. An uncle played the fiddle, a cousin sang Cherry Ripe, and another uncle sang Drake's drum. It was very warm in the little house. Auntie Hannah, who had got onto the parsnip wine, sang a song about bleeding hearts and death, and then another in which she said her heart was like a bird's nest. And then everybody laughed again. And then I went to bed. Looking through my bedroom window, out into the moonlight and the unending smoke-colored snow, I could see the lights in the windows of all the other houses on our hill, and hear the music rising from them up the long, steadily falling night. I turned the gas down. I got into bed. I said some words to the close and holy darkness, and then I slept. (laughs) Okay, we're going to jump right into crying. Thank you, Penny. That was lovely. You get almost an hour of that if you go to YouTube. And not a lot of that out there where we... I know uh, uh, Dylan Thomas, wow. A poetic voice. So... Tell everybody, Rama. This is Alcazar and Cryon sharing a Christmas Day message about what's shaking. (laughs) Okay. And I would say, 
is about the Akash showing up in our faces. And I haven't listened, but, you know, that that's what's got to happen. That lady from Gaia TV just saying, expect the unexpected. And yeah. there it is. Okay, this is what, 35 minutes drama? Yeah. Okay, Christmas Day message. Here we go. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> to Manchester. This is Julianne and Pragit, and long distance away from us. <laughs> well, it's not hello, that long. Hello, everyone. It's <laughs> hello, Monica hello. and Lee. We're in the Cryon <laughs> studio. Right, which is also in California, which is a very long state. But uh, we're, <laughs> it's not a long distance, that really, not that much. And how wonderful well, that we can be joined in this virtual way with not just each other, but with the beautiful... Lightworker family that's come together. Happy holidays, everyone. I know. Happy Christmas to everybody and have a really fantastic time. And we just wanted to come together as we have done the last couple of years. Um, they've been up in Shasta, but this time, unfortunately, we're a little bit distant. But the energy I can feel already is very, very beautiful. And it's lovely to be with you two guys again. I love it. It's just like we do this, every, uh, well, last two years and this year. And thank you for suggesting this, uh, Pregnant, so we can get together and do this yet again. Yeah, absolutely. I miss coming up there, being in the magic of Mount Shasta. And the last couple of times we've done that, we've had beautiful flurries of snow falling and just that connecting with mm -hmm. family. And even though we can't do it physically, this is so Wonderful and awesome and how special that we can be connecting in this way and also in the lounge rooms of many, many other people who perhaps you're not able to see your loved ones because of the mm. extraordinary times that we find ourselves in this way. So I think now more than ever it's important to connect in whatever way we can, even if it's virtually. Well, what we've been finding over the last year is that as we connect with people, as we all have an intention to connect energetically, we actually start to feel people connecting in. So I invite the whole audience just to take a moment and just intend to connect your energy with not just the four of us, but the thousands of people all checking in right now, just to share these words from Alcazar and from Cryon. So we have the Cryon family all over the world. We have the Stargate community all over the world. Just feel as if you could energetically reach out and be with each other. A lot of them come together, too. This yeah. is stuff. They come together once a year, actually, when we do this. Mm -hmm. And it's, 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 yeah. it's awesome. It's, it's a great feeling. The connection is, I can, it I can is. feel it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, I can feel it here. 
And that's the magic of the quantum field. Yeah. It's like we connect energetically. And people at home watching this, even though it's a recording, yeah. you'll be able to tune in and feel. It's magic because we're actually in England right now. <laughs> we will be. Yeah. When, <laughs> and we're when this is airing. Yeah. We're on Christmas Day. We'll probably still be here in the studio. Yeah, we're just going to sit here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's see. I mean, the the intention was just to get some insight and some support from beyond the veil, mm-hmm. because even though we know it's a very chaotic world right now, we're all getting messages that something very beautiful is kind of changing, simmering, getting ready to reveal itself. And even though Alcazar has said that things are going to be a challenge for quite a while yet, he's also stressing that there's some amazing things happening and about to slowly reveal themselves. (sighs) Yeah, I think too, from what I perceive with many people is things appear to not be moving fast enough. We want change to happen and we want this current situation to just be over with. Mm-hmm. And what I love is that Crian has just been telling us more and more about mastery and some of the tools we can use when we see things that divide us, when we see things that really upset us, is to focus in on mastery because mastery... It observes and it doesn't react. Mm. And when you can be in that place of mastery where you're just observing, you're just looking at what's unfolding around you and you get connected into the core and then it doesn't matter what's happening because it's all going to resolve itself. Mm. And when you send out that wave of benevolence to surround any situation in benevolence, it always tends to resolve itself. We just have to trust and be in that place of universal acceptance, patience, kindness, understanding, tolerance. Mm -hmm. And I certainly feel that has helped me, that and not watching the news. (laughs) (laughs) Also... Um, if I can say, um, what else has um, helped her is, re- is uh, wearing reindeer here. Um, <laughs> you think that's for Christmas? No, I come home and she's meditating with reindeer here. So. Oh, I thought they were antennae. It's actually yeah. part of my enhanced DNA. Oh, my <laughs> I'm goodness. surprised you don't have yours yet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm resisting asking to see your feet, what's happening at the other end. <laughs> We're not talking about that. <laughs> I'm curious to show. Yeah. Have you started to well, call yet? That's for our soul show. Yeah. Yeah. Part yeah. of the reindeer quantum DNA is the ability to fly and to have a nose that can guide you through the night. That'd be right. So. They- She'd be right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) Well, what you were saying is, Hmm. oh, I was going to say it's very similar to what Alcazar's been Uh saying 
about dissolving the judgment mm-hmm. and moving into compassion. Mm-hmm. So I think this, this, the same direction is being guided from, yeah. well, from and, all. And also, because I said, when times get chaotic on the planet, it's more important than ever to lift your consciousness above the mass unconsciousness of humanity. So that's that, that point where you lift up and it's like the options that you can't see when you're in the chaos start to reveal themselves. Greg even says it's a transmitter. As we, um, the higher consciousness we can have and the more we can get above the fray, it's, um, it has, it actually broadcasts life. And this is something that we never really had heard before in that way. So I, I love the whole concept. And that's also, why we reach a tipping point of consciousness when we all do that together, mm-hmm. that uh, the planet sees it and uh, reacts to it and in a, in a very, very compassionate way as well. So all the things that Alcazar, uh, Alcazar has been saying is um, very commensurate with what Crying has been teaching. And we find that um, constantly when, when Fergie and I get together, and we, especially when we channel together, and when we talk among ourselves, finding out what's going on, you'll find that the information from the other side of the veil is very commensurate between the two of us. And that tells us Mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, there is a basic truth out there and we're both receiving it. Mm. Yes, and it comes out in different words and different expressions because people are different and they like to hear it in different ways. Mm -hmm. So it's always a celebration when we get together. So, shall we see what they have to say for us for this Christmas Day? Yeah, I think that would be great. And I might actually just, you know, I with my DNA-enhanced reindeer ears, I can actually remove them. <laughs> so I, I might do that now as we go into a meditation. And would you like me to start the meditation and we go to Cryon or should we go? We go to, we go to Alcazar first, Alca- always. Yeah. I, I believe. Is that right? Would that okay. work for or you? Or do, do we want Alcazar last? Which we don't mind. Just you go ahead as you were planning. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Well, how about I begin a meditation and we'll just allow everything to unfold organically as to who wants to come through after that. Unless we speak together, which would be so because we're not sitting next to each other, we don't really know as much. I'll tell you what. I'll go first. Let's let uh, our host go last always, which would be Alcazar. Perfect. Okay. Wonderful. Well, I'm still, like Jules and Pragit said, I'm still feeling the connections of everybody tuning into this gathering, feeling the hearts of everyone. There's just so much love pouring in from across the globe because we are connected in a profound way, deeply connected. And so with that feeling of connection, I invite you to close your eyes and focus on the energy within your feet. Feel the connection deepen with the energy of the earth. And through the earth, 
there are many grids. There are many energetic grids, ley lines that connect you to everyone else on the planet. And so just take a moment to tune in to the energy within your feet, connecting in with the energy grids of the earth. And as you connect in with that constant energetic stream of consciousness swirling through the earth, touching every single human on the planet, just be in a moment where you're just observing the energy move around the globe. And now focus your intention to send out pulses of love into the grid below your feet. And so we're gently sending out pulses of love that flow into the grid. And then just visualize those pulses of love reaching every human that's standing on the earth so that they have that ability to receive the love pulse that you are sending. And as that love pulse makes its way all around the globe, eventually it comes back and reaches you, only it's been amplified because of the collective pulsing of love that we are all now holding. And so from that vibration of love that we are now bathing in, let us welcome in the divine messages of Cryon. Greetings, dear ones. I am Cryon of Magnetic Service. A remarkable group of old souls is here now listening. And I don't, I don't speak now of those you see on your screen. <coughs> I speak of all of those collectively who are giving intent as they watch it. Dear ones, there are so many things that we wish to speak about, but we speak about only one. What is coming? Sometimes spirit puts together some hints and some metaphors. <coughs> And the one that is most prominent would be that which is the meaning of the numbers of the year. You are about to approach the year 2022. There are three twos in the year. First of all, if you take a look at the numbers, and there are three of them, we do not count the zeros. In that which we wish to interpret through Tibetan numerology, one of the most ancient systems. <clears throat> Three is the catalytic number. 
You might say it's a catalytic year. And you'd be right. If you study the word catalyst, it sits there and does nothing, but when things pass through it, it changes them. <clears throat> so this is the catalyst. And that would mean that the entire year would be filled with things passing through it and change would occur because of it. We're going to brand the year. We're going to give it a name. It's the year of revelation. Well, the things that are going to happen may surprise you. And the things that are going to happen, I'm going to define now through the rest of the numbers of the year. The first is a two, and it stands alone. Next to the zero, the zero again is not counted. And so the two alone is duality, polarity, the yin and the yang. It represents free choice. But more than that, the process of duality. It's not necessarily a wonderful number to get a reading of if you get it alone, but it stands with the 22. Apart from it, but with it, and you must consider it together. Duality often would tell you that something is going to happen regarding duality. Duality is the measurement often of that which you say light and dark. And we have told you in this particular time since 2012 that light is building and that light will make a difference. And that light is actually winning in certain areas that you've already seen, but perhaps you didn't notice. What light does in this particular time for you is it illuminates the dark things that have been there. And when you turn on light, especially more than it has been, the dark things react and they push back. Have you seen any of that? Have you seen things happen you didn't expect? Have you seen things that you suspect perhaps are corrupt? Have you seen things that don't make any sense? This is the dark reacting and trying to hold itself and posture itself so that you cannot look any further. Have you seen that? The year of revelation means that they don't have a chance. The 22 is very, very interesting. It is a master number. The second one, first master number, number is a 11, 11, and it would be illumination. 22, as opposed to the 11, means cosmic law. Now, it's very, very interesting because so many don't understand what that really truly means. Because two is duality and it stands next to another two and suddenly you have the meaning which is cosmic law, what would that be? Perhaps that would indicate things that would correct themselves because of the light. What is cosmic law? It would be the law of the light. Things cannot stand in the light which are corrupt. Things cannot stand in the light which are dysfunctional. Things cannot stand in the light, which are dark. Do you see the meaning of two and 22 that stand together? But the beauty of it is you cannot then simply have those numbers. You must add them together. 
And when you add them together, you get the magnificence of the six. That is the magnificent number. Harmony, balance, love, compassion. This year contains all of that. The year of revelation. Stand by for things you didn't expect, and perhaps they'll be a little better than the ones you've been receiving for the last two years. Now, this is all up to humanity and can change, as you say, very quickly on a dime. Because humanity has free choice. But the light is building and the consciousness is starting to ask the questions, especially the ones that have been developed in the dark. So stand by, as we say, for more things to happen that are good. Dear ones, you can manifest them more quickly if right now you can put yourself in a state where you can project into the future with intent that the light will be strong. Strong enough to get you through this individually, but strong enough also to make differences in the planet, in your countries, in your cities, and all the places where you feel there is perhaps dysfunction at this moment because of what you're going through with the virus. These things will change, and there will be things revealed, a lot of things, this next year and the one following that, remarkable things are going to happen. So look forward to this, but project with your own mind the light and see it happening faster than not. And that is your power, a lot of power. Let the masters right now flow into this room in preparation for Alcazar, for he always calls them in. Well, they will tell you much the same thing. Feel the love that they have for all of you. We would not be here if it were not for the love we have for humanity. We would not be contactable if it were not for the majesty and the magnificence of the human being. I am crying in love with humanity. And so it is. Beloved ones, we greet thee. Tis Alcazar. It is a great honor for us to be with each and every one of you and to be sharing these few moments with you all. As you have heard, change is on the way. How fast the change happens is actually up to humanity. And how fast your individual change occurs is up to you. It is very easy to look around your world and to allow an energy of depression. Things are not going well. But beloveds, as you have heard so many times from so many teachers, where 
do you put your energy? What is it you wish to illuminate? What is it you wish to emphasize? What is it you wish to bring forth into your life? Put your focus on raising your vibration. Put your focus as has already been discussed. Put your focus on living and allowing. So that the separation that is manifest right now in your world becomes less in your life. Drop the judgment of others. And more importantly, drop the judgment that you may have about your own self. You are powerful creators. You can create new reality in your lives individually and here on your earth. It is happening. How fast it happens. It's up to you. Are you going to be on the leading edge of change? We hope so. We invite you to be courageous. Courageous enough to drop the judgment. Courageous enough to look forward to that light of oneness that brings the extremes together. Slowly, slowly. Through this process of awakening, through this process of illumination, as Cryon has said, the light revealing that which has already been, always been there. It has always been there, but hidden beneath the surface, not so obvious. And so, beloved ones, Move into this coming year with joy and celebration. Find the small things to be grateful for. Because if you look at your life, there is much that you can be grateful for. The small things. The little things in your life that bring you joy or make you smile. Allow gratitude to blossom in your heart for these little things. Because gratitude, as most of you are aware, it is an energetic that opens you up and supports you, receiving much more of that which you would like to create in your life. And so, beloved ones, Hold the vision, this light of oneness coming to your earth in greater and greater and greater amounts. Be a conduit for this oneness as you drop your judgment and as you bring forth compassion for all those who are struggling in this reality. And hold the vision of that changing, not just for yourself, but for humanity as a whole. Okay. 
And so, beloved ones, illumination is a phenomena that is upon you. This illumination is the light of oneness. It is accessible from within. As we look upon you as a collective, the cryon group, this gathering of stargators, you have all been exploring higher consciousness. You have all made an impact beyond that which you have known. And there is a momentum that has been growing, a momentum that is feeding this network of higher consciousness that has been growing just below the surface. Can you feel it? Can you feel the resonance with what this one cryon is saying about the year of revelation? Are you ready? Are you ready to reveal to your own self your united presence from within, your higher consciousness? Are you ready to be uplifted in new ways? If you are, we would suggest place your focus there. Make this your mantra for this upcoming days, weeks, the year to come. Entering into the oneness. Entering the unified field of compassion. Because, beloved ones, change is indeed upon your earth. Each and every one of you, being a light worker, you are bringing the light of oneness. This light cannot help but touch the levels of consciousness of all those who are in the human bodies on this your earth. If you look upon your news media, you will see what is being focused upon. And yet, if you look at humanity and the news feeds that are occurring other places, you can find so many examples of individuals being drawn, magnetized toward higher consciousness in so many different ways. Love and caring, finding ways of expressing themselves. Even if it is in a way that you disagree with, you can see there are so many people who are attempting to live in alignment, unified with their values and their care for humanity. So, beloved ones, we invite you to rejoice indeed. We invite you to take a moment to feel the energy fields that unite you all in this moment. Feel each other. Feel and appreciate the momentum that you have cultivated in these past years. For although they have been challenging times, they have carved out a realness within so many of you, a depth, an alchemical catalyst 
for you to go beyond the suffering into higher consciousness. And so, beloved ones, enjoy this holiday season. Enjoy the coming of the new year. And know there is much support for you in your evolution. And on behalf of all those beyond the veil, we wish you to know we are with you always. We are with you in all ways. Good day. And we look forward to connecting with you. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Huh. Well, that was nice. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm still yeah. in the floaty space created by those beautiful messages, so I... I have a feeling our audience is still in that. I like the floaty space. Floaty space. Floaty space. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the energy is very floaty. Yeah. <laughs> very strong. Yeah. 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 It's good that nobody tries to interview us right after we channel because um, I don't think <laughs> we would be. <laughs> I know. It takes a while to kind of yeah. come back to the body. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know about you, but we have many who want to interview us, and have to be careful that it's not too close to the channeling. So, mm. yeah, this has been wonderful, folks. Thank you so much for inviting us into again your homes, and mm. especially Pragit, Jules. Your, I wish we were there. We've had so wonderful uh, snow experiences there, and I was mm. snowing again, mm. and it's just so beautiful there. Well, no doubt it will happen again, and I'm looking forward to being with you guys next year in, in June, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, yeah, we're going to be in McLeod. Right, for... McLeod right next to you, and you're going to be yep. apart from that too, I know. Yeah. We're going to have a great time. Yeah. Yes, so Klein and Alsa will be together again, so I'm hoping yeah. that the whole audience will take a trip to Mount Shasta, because by then it's going to be very free and easy. Mm. <laughs> That's what I see. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, one thing about when something like this happens, there becomes a deeper, if, if freedom's been taken away from you, there's a deeper um, appreciation for when it's granted back. Mm-hmm. So I have that sense that there's a richness that happens as a result of all of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Appreciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And solutions are coming. They really are. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's great to know. Mm-hmm. So thank you guys so much for sharing this time with us. Thank you to this grand audience around the world who we can't see, but we've already been feeling very strongly. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. We look, we look forward to the time when we can give you all a big hug. Mm, yes. Yes. Indeed. Absolutely. Thank Sending you. you a big hug, everyone. Yeah. Blessings. Happy Bye-bye. holiday. Happy, Happy holiday. holiday. Happy New Year. Mm.
Okay, everybody, we're going to play a few songs. We've got so much music, we got to squeeze them in before, in the middle, and after. Mm. These are some that Penny picked for us. Okay. Um, so just go ahead and play. Start. Okay, hang on. Uh. Oh, boy. Now that's Christmas music, everybody. <laughs> I know we got a few more moments here. Mm. I'll just do a little quick uh, oracle report. Um, this was for yesterday, but... That's just a moment before now. Um, this is, uh, okay, well, uh, the sacred count is the five dog empowered protection. Moon in Virgo, disseminating moon phase, share, communicate, pay attention to what you are hearing, higher octaves. Protection, responsibility, guardians, values, assessment, coping, effective presence, cooperation, embarking, embarking and integration. The lower octaves, oh yes, empire, uncoordinated, strikes, overcoming differences by recognizing that others are not at the same place arguments mission celebrate what is becoming wise owls as we can tune in to the love of five dogs and emanate this we will have done well this is not because the day is inherently difficult rather because of the times five dog is a lovely a lovey dovey dog mm-hmm. with Mars trying Chiron today. Yeah. That was yesterday, just saying. It is a powerful dog, like a German Shepherd. Oh, that's right. Um, the Biden's got a 16 month old German Shepherd. That's, I saw that oh, today. I am pretty sure Cheyenne slash Chi Chi, the German Shepherd, is saying Merry Christmas to all of the Wise Owls because she is certainly a five dog. I don't know who that is, but anyway. Mm-hmm. The Earth is discharging a cat, arguing with a mouse. So we will be the five dog and do something else. For today's report, I am copying today's space weather and copying from the otherwise overview I just posted a few days ago. So you will get to feel a feel for the day. Yet below is something lovely on Christmas Eve that you may have time to read over the holiday weekend. I will be back in space weather tomorrow. Okay, that's good. we got to take a break. Thank you, everyone. We got uh, a visit with our brother Richard coming up and a look at the stars and Kay Pacha, Tanya Gabrielle, and... More music. More music. <laughs> okay, namaste for now, everybody. See you in a very short while. Aloha. Pass the talking stick to you, Richard.
Okay, then. Greetings, Commander. Greetings. Well, greetings. Greetings, good evening. Another day in the neighborhood. It happens to be Christmas. Thank you it, for it, Yeah, it just happens to be Christmas. Uh, yes. There's still chores to do. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, we're, we're in Capricorn. And the same uh, keyword, first half of Capricorn, Crystallization is respect. What he, what he says, uh, I'm not going to read it, so I'm just going to paraphrase it. Group purpose organized a more informal structure. Uh, hence, hence, we call it self-government or government by the group. The problem is with the nature of the individuals in the group, especially when the groups get very, very large, right? It's it's much it's it's much easier for a small group, say twelve or under, to come to an agreement than millions of individuals coming to agreement. Hence, we run into the the law of number, the laws regarding large numbers, which we're now now facing on the planet, right? So that's that's the situation, and this is the season that we get to to look at those issues again. You know, we've been looking at them actually for for a couple of years. You know, we got a very we got a very prominent issue that very large numbers are dealing with with this uh, uh, COVID virus. You know, this uh, virus thing. You know, so. Some people are uh, uh, doing okay with it, you know. Some people are not doing okay with it. Some organizations are keeping the vaccine production to themselves, and people hollering, you know, vaccinate the world, you know, and. Hence, humans are still working on their skill sets that have to do with adaptability. That's what humanity is all about, being adaptable. 
adaptable to the planet and all the things that Mother Nature can throw at you. So, uh, steady as she goes, stay strong, stay centered, stay calm, don't hurt anybody, and uh, let's go listen to Kaipacha for a minute. Okay, this is about 37 minutes. Yes, I'll settle down, everybody. Thank you, Richard. That was He's a good introduction. He's on a roll here. Yes. Christmas Pele Report for the year 2021. And what do we have happening today? We have Leo in the fire sign, and we have the moon in the fire sign of Leo. (laughs) And she is moving on through Leo. Of course, she will oppose Saturn and square Uranus today and tomorrow. She'll continue on into an opposition with the Jupiter. Jupiter at the very last, last, last degree of Aquarius. Jupiter goes into Pisces next week, Tuesday. Woohoo! Going to be a little shift in energy there next uh, next week, Tuesday. I'll talk a little bit more about that. But in the meantime, you know, the biggie is Saturn comes into its third exact Square to Uranus, yeah. And remember, the first one was February. The second retrograde was in June, and this is the third grand finale of Saturn square Uranus. Merry Christmas! <laughs> Yikes! <laughs> then we also, of course, have Venus. Uh, she came across. Remember, uh, she uh, conjoined with Pluto. A little while ago, now she turned retrograde, and she is exactly square Pluto going backwards, okay, here on Saturday. And, of course, she is going to go back to, like, 11 degrees uh, of Capricorn and go forward and uh, aspect conjunct uh, Pluto a third time. Yeah, uh, and that's coming up, you know, uh, quite a ways from now. I'll talk more about that. But... You know, so the moon's moving then through uh, Virgo, Friday, Saturday, Christmas Day. We have a moon in Virgo, okay? We have a beautiful, I mean, it's interesting, Venus exactly conjunct Pluto on Christmas Day. Mars is in a beautiful trine this whole week, exact on Christmas Day. (laughs) And then on Sunday... Okay, you know, after the moon uh, opposes Neptune, she goes into Libra. And so Sunday, Libra, uh, she will move along, move along, move along, and what? We have our uh, third quarter square, right? So we'll have a quarter moon there on Sunday at five degrees, Libra, 32 minutes. 
squaring that sun that has just gone into Capricorn and is at 5 degrees 32 minutes of Capricorn. See how that works? And what else can we say about this? And finally, on Tuesday, besides Jupiter going into Pisces, we also then Mars comes into 150 degree in conjunct quincunx with, uh, with Uranus. Yeah. So these are the energies that I will be speaking about as I sit in front of the fire on a blustery day for Christmas. Okay, everybody. Ho, ho, ho. Well, before I get going on today's report, I have a number of announcements. Commercial announcements, because, you know, Christmas is so commercial these days. (laughs) First of all, with a little help from my friends, I have put together What is Love? Yeah! As an audio video book. I read it out loud and we put it together with the pages and we just got it up. Uh, it's available. There's a link down below, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the notes underneath uh, this, this Pele report. And you can link right over. So now we've got the book, hardcover, soft cover, made it into a calendar. And people asked for me reading it. So it's an audio video. It's like, woo, what is love? At the end of today's Pele report, I'm going to put a little clip in there of Capricorn. What is love to Capricorn? Yeah. <laughs> so you got to check it out. What else is going on? Um, we, we are holding some, you know, we're holding this uh, early bird price for strengthening the warrior within. It's in Peru. We have to strengthen, summon up our warrior, yeah, to get on a freaking plane, to get down to Peru and confront and face all of the obstacles and Saturnian blocks and delays to, you know, and, and just like say, commit, like, I'm going to do this, which is, you know, really a lot of the message that is happening um, throughout the year of 2022 as Saturn comes into square the moon's nodes. Um, I just did a video uh, on Saturn square the moon's <laughs> nodes through the different houses. That is available uh, to the uh, New Paradigm School of Astrology. Uh, you might want to check that out. I've been a busy bee lately, a little Santa's elf. <laughs> I also did uh, the Astrology of the United States, particularly looking at the transits for the year 2022. The link for that is also all this stuff is available on my website. As well as, you know, videos and further information on the whole state of affairs on planet Earth uh, these days um, uh, that I put on my resources tab on the website, if you are not familiar with that. I am also on Telegram. Uh, You know, uh, there's a New Paradigm Astrology on Telegram. We have New Paradigm Astrology on Spotify. Uh, we're on Instagram, and actually, I'm needing to withdraw a little bit. <laughs> I think um, I can't maintain myself uh, and all the uh, all the 
friendly connections on all of these platforms. So I think I'm going to be backing off of uh, Facebook Messenger in case you are uh, looking for me there. I'm not going to be there anymore. <laughs> what else is going on? Yeah, so workshops and books and calendars and Christmas and, uh, you know, family. So let's get down to the heart of the matter. Um, and for that, I think I need to take off my happy Santa hat. <laughs> ah! Yeah. Uh, this fire is hot. I hope I'm going to make it uh, through this. <laughs> but uh, I really want to, you know, uh, it, it was just, I was so living into this energy of this time. This is such an intense deeply transformative time as the mantra reflects I want to talk about Venus Pluto I want to talk about love I want to talk about the heart I want to talk about the transformation that love asks of us that requires of us that does to us that we do to ourselves for love it, it love is all there is. Love is uh, the beginning and the end. Love is where we come from and where we return to. We could say love is source. Source, creator, is love. We are born out of love. And, I'm, and I was just, you know, laying in bed this morning, uh, you know, listening in and downloading as much as possible. I was getting these different images and uh, things, you know, for today's uh, mantra. And I didn't get the, get it into the mantra, but it was really this image of that we are like the sword and love is the blacksmith. Or we could say source, the ultimate divine love is the blacksmith. And maybe love is the forge the fire and the hammer that is, you know, refining, creating, taking the raw substance of our ego, of our self, of our individuality, our individual nature and turning us from a, a clump of molten silver into a refined, beautiful, sharp sword. This is, this is Pluto. And I, and I think of a Vulcan. Yes. Uh, you know, and, uh, and actually I think it was Zeus's brother, Hephaestus, right? That, you know, forged all the, you know, all the weapons and all the tools and all the armory and, you know, Vulcan is, uh, yeah, there's a whole, all the mythology around Vulcan is very, very powerful. He's, you know, he's very ugly, okay, and so he was rejected, and so he's got this Chiron kind of energy around him, and so, you know, here is Venus, rules the heart chakra, going into the fiery forge of Vulcan of the blacksmith. It's like our hearts are going into, right, the flames 
you know, down into the underworld of Pluto. And Pluto, of course, is pressure and intensity. So we're all experiencing this time period right now. And it's so phenomenal, right, that it exactly coincides with Christmas. And it's, and, and of course, this time of year coincides with Capricorn. And the ruler of Capricorn, Saturn, comes into an exact third square with Uranus. So we have to also look at this archetype, right? You know, behind. It's like the background, okay, to this beautiful painting, okay, of the, of this feminine love energy. Like Inanna descending into the underworld, burying herself, burying ourselves, burying our souls. Because Saturn rules reflection. Contemplation. It is serious, sober, deep reflection on our past. The Cancer Capricorn axis is the family axis, the DNA axis, the gender selection axis, as well as mom and dad. We all have an in, we've all internalized the sun and the moon. We've all internalized our mom and dad. We have an inner mom and an inner dad. And we have this, you know, inner child. And we have this inner romantic masculine warrior. And we have this beautiful goddess feminine. You know, we all have this inside us. This is what astrology is all about. Is the outside reflecting and mirroring the inside. So as Venus spends these months, she's, you know, she's been in Capricorn. She will retrograde back all through January, turn direct and all through February and, and join together with Mars. Mars comes up to meet her in Capricorn and Venus and Mars travel together through February and March in union through Capricorn and Aquarius. Very powerful symbolism that we could talk about for ages. <laughs> anyway, you know, for today, I just want to delve into this idea also of this, you know, Saturn in square to Uranus is a 270 degree square. So it is about a 52-year cycle of Saturn and Uranus. They came into conjunction in the zero degrees of Capricorn at 1988. Maybe some of you weren't even alive then, but some of you may remember back then. 1988. You know what was going on in 1988? Well, there was a, well, one thing was Yasser Arafat uh, announced that the state proclaimed the state of Palestine. So there was a great shift and change over there. Yeah, and we can see a great big shift and change happening in Israel right now as being kind of the test uh, station guinea pig for the inoculations. But another thing that was happening then was the first talks were happening at CERN about 
creating a world wide web. <laughs> the seeds of Saturn Uranus forming Uranus, right? Forming, you know, materializing the enlightened, liberated, you know, third eye awakened electricity magnetic Uranus into Saturnian wires and circuits and chips and phones and screens and let's materialize the uh, yeah, Uranus is the personal unconscious. It is our own genius. Let's let's take that genius wow. and, and make it into you know the beginnings and the roots of artificial intelligence. That would be Saturn, Uranus, and now it comes around full swing, not full swing. Uh, it actually returns. The you know the the next uh, Saturn Uranus uh, conjunction uh, happens in twenty thirty two in the sign of Gemini. Ruled by Mercury, so we'll see this whole cycle from 1988 to 2032. You know, Saturn Uranus is this whole cyborg, uh, you know, human 2.0, uh, you know, uh, Neuralink, uh, you know, robotics. I mean, this whole energy, nanobots, possibly. Getting injected into human beings. <laughs> ah, this is all—it's like science fiction materializing. And in the meantime, you know, the downside or the—you know—part of that is the pressure and the force and the mandates put out by governments. Yes, uh, you know, being kind of led with, you know, Austria and Israel and Australia and some of these countries that are, you know, just really, you know, pushing, you know, Germany, Canada, there's a lot of, you know, very, very uh, strong amounts of lockdowns, which is making this Christmas season, uh, you know, a real time of reflection. And this is the thing that astrology tells us. When you have Saturn aspecting Venus, Saturn transiting your seventh house, Saturn coming out, Saturn says that, you know, yes, it is obstacles, delays, inhibitions, problems, challenges that the soul has created for itself to slow down its external activities to reflect more upon its karma, more upon its dharma, more upon how it has gotten to where it is, and then to make choices, decisions, commitments, and contracts that get it where it wants to go. So we are all in a period now of changing renegotiating, reflecting on our commitments, on the past goals and relationships that got us to where we are now. And with the changes being in some ways forced upon us from the outside world, we are needing to modify 
and set a maybe a new trajectory, a new goal. I have a different purpose, a different meaning for my life. I, you know, I can, I, I'll share a personal story. You know, my personal story is I've been doing astrology for a long time and I really thought it was my purpose to spread astrology, but now I feel like we are in some kind of, uh, you know, end game in terms of a totalitarian takeover. And I'm almost feeling like, you know, forget the astrology. I need to like really get out there to help mobilize the warriors, you know, to save our children and the future of our planet. Okay, from this insane uh, technological, materialistic, uh, you know, uh, disaster. This is the incarnation of Armin. This is the uh, the materialistic takeover occurring here that wants to eradicate spirit, spiritual knowledge us viewing and understanding and exploring ourselves as spiritual soul beings and seek immortality through robotics, through material, through making these bodies last or making our thoughts, which come from the ego, last forever through memories and avatars that are going to carry us into immortality through the use of technology. This is just like so, uh, <laughs> makes me want to barf up my eggnog. I've got some <laughs> almond milk nog. <laughs> uh -uh. No brandy yet, it's still the morning. <laughs> On another level besides that, besides the Saturn Uranus, we also want to just understand that Saturn in Capricorn, this, this reflection is often taken as depression. It's often taken as melancholy. This is, so this is a very melancholy Christmas. And, you know, if you are kind of feeling a little down in the dumps or a little lonely or just a little uh, tired of it all or wanting to just stay in bed, or <laughs> this is just really part, okay, and parcel of the energy that is now really, you know, helping. I hate to say it, but, you know, it's a healing crisis. This is Mars in a beautiful trine with Chiron, the wounded healer. And this is a healing of the heart. It is kind of a death of our old understanding of what love is, of what is valuable, of what relationships are, and mean to us. So a lot of our relationships will be going through. Some is, you know, the end. Some is a transformation of, and some is the birth of. These are the three, uh, you know, aspects that can happen here with this Venus-Pluto. But it is deep. It is heart-wrenching. And so, you know, it is really about pulling back the layers of, you know, Capricorn, and, you know, is the, you know, it has to do, okay, with our role in the world, our duty, our office, our reputation, 
the way we are seen or the mask or the persona that we wear out in the world and the sun moving through here now Venus and Pluto Mars will be joining Mercury is here it's like this you know there is this whole Capricorn energy and it is about removing the personas removing the masks reflecting on the deeper deeper levels the karma what I have done what I have failed to do we are all works in progress we are learning how to love we are learning what love is we are learning how to express love how to receive love and along the way we are going to fail and we are going to fall and we are going to hurt and be hurt and we are going to say the wrong things and we are going to hear harsh judgments and you know this is especially being really brought up with the split and the divisions of families around this whole inoculation of this poisonous serum you know you know that is just like really you know bringing you know the red pill and the blue pill and the this and the that and this side and that side and the polarization is actually like like you know focusing the microscope on you know it's it's like it's bringing things up to the surface fear need for control pride ego that's in the mantra today right this all is about you know pulling back the layers of the onion shedding the skins the snake you know emerging out into we will emerge out of this dilemma this too shall pass as saturn again tells us chronos father time with you know we are uh, uh, this is all a season of change and we are at a turning point the solstice is a turning point so in some ways it's like okay <sighs> in the northern hemisphere we just had the longest night of the soul <laughs> and it's going to they're going to get shorter and shorter and shorter and mars is going to come in there and join together with venus and things are going to get better you know as, as things move on oh my goodness but you know in the meantime we want to really get the most out of we want to really gain a deeper relationship to ourselves and ultimately this is what venus pluto contacts tell us we cannot look for love in the outside world we cannot look ask need other people's opinions uh, approvals kudos acknowledgments facebook likes <laughs> you know youtube subscriptions we cannot rely on this external world the capricorn business office reputation we that is what we need to do to evolve through this time is the pluto polarity point 
and we evolve through the Venus polarity point and the Mars polarity point, which brings us to the north. Uh, there's these polarity points, and these lie in Cancer. So uh, the, the way through the eye of this needle, the way through this birth canal, this tunnel, okay, then we are just, you know, in the dark looking for, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> it is to come into relationship with ourselves. Cancer is our watery, emotional needs for emotional connection. And that starts at home. So, we, rather than looking for love out there in order to, it's like, okay, boy, if everybody loves me, I can love myself. It's okay. It's, it's the reversal of that, that I need to come into, which means and involves a lot of self-forgiveness. Not only do we ask others to stop judging us, but in order for us to even stop judging others, we have to stop judging ourselves in terms of, and it's not that you stop judgment. We, we have to judge in order to make a decision, in order to live. We don't stop judgment. But the criteria that we use, what, how I am judging myself, what are these conditions? Are they from the religion? Are they from mom and dad? Are they from some external authority that I'm judging myself according to what I think is Hollywood makes popular, you know, popular? I should look this way in order to love myself because that's what is on the cover of magazines. So it's, it's letting go of all superficial, you know, forms, aspects of judgment. Look at the fires like. <laughs> I'm gonna melt. I gotta shut up. <laughs> okay, let's knock it off. Yeah, but it—it's it, like, yeah, we're getting stripped, and it's uncomfortable. It's hard. It is depressing. It is, you know, melancholy. It is, da, 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 and it also, but but it also leads to, you know, it's the forge that refines us and sharpens us and makes us brilliant, and that's where the mantra ends with today. Yeah, that it is. I have to let go of my pride, fear, and control to bear my soul to you. Yet when I do, I see me through you as a heart full of love so Kind of struggle with the rhyme a little bit there, but I hope that if you repeat this over again, it is just kind of this, this is this Inanna, you know, the, the stripping down of our false 
selves of our old selves of our established ego control of our need to be on top or be beautiful or be handsome or be you know full of pride and vanity and you know love humbles us you know it's it's the hammer it beats us up <laughs> and yet through it all is the the realizations the our, our capacity to embrace uh unite on ever deeper 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 levels is is found is discovered and it allows us to soar higher and experience the most absolute ecstasy and the nirvanic samadhi spiritual love beyond expression beyond you know my ability to put into words so just know that what we're doing is and we're like stretching the rubber band we're 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 stretching the spectrum of what we are able to feel and we may fear the dark side of the spectrum <laughs> the low frequency <laughs> you know the inner you know scares and fears and you know uh you know uh, void and emptiness and loneliness and oh, you know it's like no, no 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 but i'll tell you what when we go there when we sit in the void and we empty ourselves and we forgive and we let go of our own mistakes and maybe that involves asking for forgiveness maybe that involves saying that we're sorry maybe that involves you know really bearing our you know our own shame to others but when we do wow the makeup you know it's like yes we're going to you know we're going to put that argument that that you know that hurt that wound behind us and we're going to try again and we're going to open again or we're going to you know let each other off the hook we're going to accept that we are all human here and we are all works in progress and we are then able to experience a connection a union a love that we perhaps were not able to fully experience before mm-hmm. so merry christmas it's it contains within it some of the deepest challenges and hurts and pain yet on the other side of that curtain on the other side of that tunnel it can also contain tremendous healing and tremendous opening of the heart and we see ourselves through each other as yeah right you know what i mean <laughs> i hope so <laughs> experience yourself as a heart full of love so true because in in your seed essence that is what each one of us are
have to let go of my pride, fear, and control to bear my soul to you. Yet when I do, I see me through you as a light of love so true. As a heart, as a heart full of love so true. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. When it comes to love, there is more to say. To the mountain goat, you must find your way. So, off they went on their mighty quest. Searching east, south, north, and west. Till they found the great goat, Capricorn by name. And with great humility, they asked him the same. <laughs> what is love? Now the old goat stood still and strong, for he knew the past was far and long. No hurry, no worry. He was time itself. As he stroked his beard, he chose his words well. Love is the foundation, the roots of the tree, from which all life grows in its longing to be. It is the purpose that brings forth form. It is the reason we all are born. It brings order, both without and within, that sustains and maintains and brings about a maturity and security that soothes all doubt. But when it comes to love, there is more to say. To the water bearer himself, you must find your way. Pass the talking dick to you, Richard. Well, that was uh, comprehensive, as he, he has been lately. Mm -hmm. A lot of good ideas in there. Yeah, he lays yep. out the... Uh, uh, the problems of the uh, the rise of tyranny. You know, it's like uh, I don't like tyranny, but I do like order. You know. Mm -hmm. So anyway, the battle the battle continues against erratic and absurd and irrational governments. Mm -hmm. Around the world, so that's that's my that's my comment here. So <laughs> for the new yeah, for you know next next weekend we will be the New Year's Day is next Saturday is the first. 
So, uh, finish up, yeah, finish up all your old business and uh, make ready for the new year. In many respects, the winter solstice is the beginning of the year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I kind of operate that way. And uh, so, uh, carry on, stay strong, and uh, I guess we'll see what Tanya has to say. I get her perspective on things. She's gotten better over the, over the last year that we've been listening to her. I think she's she's gotten better. But then again, she's she's a lot younger than uh, than Kaipacha, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, when, you know, I just turned seventy, so when I think of a Saturn cycle, you know, I'm looking at you know thirty years ago. You know, I say, okay, I what was going on when I was forty, and uh, whether whether the whether the current 40-year-olds up against, you know, it's that 30 to 60 zone where humans do their their best and most important work in the physical world, and then when you get to be over 70, then you're, and then you're a true, true elder, and you should turn your, turn your activities to education and counseling of the of the youth, which is anybody under, you know, younger than you, yeah. <laughs> so, enjoy, enjoy teaching, enjoy counseling, because if you've made it this far, you've been doing something right. Mm-hmm. All right. And, uh, I guess this is not a mistake for me, but uh, I'll be listening, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Richard. Here we go. If you're watching this, hello, everyone. Welcome to Star Codes. This is Tanya Gabrielle, Wealth Astrologist. And this is the forecast where we look at the astrology and numerology of an upcoming major event. In this case, the Capricorn New Moon, the first lunation of 2022. And if you're watching this around the early January days, the first or second, Happy New Year. If you're watching this closer to Christmas, Merry Christmas. It's just one of those periods where there's just so much going on. And fortunately, this Capricorn new moon brings a lot of blessings. There's an incredible code to accompany it. It's happening on the 2nd of January, 2022. That means there are four twos in the code. And four is about integration, manifestation. And Capricorn is also very much because it's ruled by Saturn, about manifestation as well. So there's a really wonderful opportunity to focus on the frequencies that you want to manifest, and not just for the year, but right now. 
So let's look more closely. The Capricorn New Moon happens at 6.33 p.m. Universal Time in London, and that's 1.33 p.m. Eastern Time New York and 10.33 a.m. in L.A. Pacific Time. And, of course, you don't need to be a Capricorn to benefit from this forecast. You have Capricorn somewhere in your chart. So this new moon, sun and moon together at 12 degrees Capricorn is happening somewhere in one of your 12 houses and may even be impacting one of your natal planets. Now, any new moon signifies a fresh start. And of course, since it's coming so early on in the new year, when we celebrate new beginnings, the fresh start energy is magnified. So Capricorn is very reliable and it is focused on tremendous dedication to something. So This new moon represents a birth of you dedicating yourself to something very, very meaningful. And so let's look at the degree number, 12 degrees. Now, we've had two new moons. The last two moons of 2021 were also at 12 degrees. And we have several consecutive new moons in 2022 that continue the 12 degree message. And so we want to look at that number. 12 is the number of the student, the number of growth, learning, and so it allows you to focus on the fact that every moment is an opportunity for self-growth. Now, the flip side, the shadow side of 12 is to feel either like a victim or a perpetrator, a victimizer, and so we are moving away from this idea that things happen to us and rather are claiming our divinity, because we are all divine. We're divine beings of light. And so this new moon is a birth of that understanding, a reminder that we are all capable of rising above that victimization mindset right? Where we don't have a choice. We have to comply. We have to do this. No, we actually do have incredible powers and incredible means internally that can create the life that we always have dreamed about. And this year, 2022, is going to ask you to tune in because the two itself, that number is the number of your relationships. And it's not just relationships to others, which of course will play a big role, but it is your relationship to source. So it is your ability to listen. It is your ability to be aligned with the divine. So all of that will be in the forefront. And the other thing is because 2022 adds up to six, two plus zero plus two plus two equals six, six is the number of love, and nurturing and abundance. So there's a lot of beautiful energy this year. So the 12 degrees is coming in and saying, okay, you're an eternal student. You're here to always learn something new. You're always growing. You're never static, right? That would be really boring to think that, you know, we know everything and there's nothing else to discover. So we are, we're riding that wave. And then the other thing is, is the new moon is trying to Uranus. And Uranus actually precipitates the learning because Uranus always wants to discover something new. Uranus is the adventurer. And Uranus really loves to set 
free through new discoveries. Now, the awesome thing is January 1st, the day before this new moon, the sun is exactly trying to Uranus. So the first of the year is a sign of how the year unfolds. And in this case, it's going to unfold in many surprising ways, meaning there's going to be more options, more fluidity, more ways to feel like you have openings here and and ways to move in this direction far more than last year so it this trying to the sun which represents our inner light represents that liberation that sense of greater awareness and it's so beautiful because you you are being freed from confinement in a sense and you're opening up with this new moon and with the sun and moon trying Uranus to fresh new energy right at the beginning of 2022. So that means you're also open to the unusual or to the what you would consider formally odd, weird, strange, right? These are these are heart-centered breakthroughs that take you beyond the old paradigm. So it may feel strange, odd, weird, just because it's not familiar. And so everything on this discovery is going to elevate you and move you out of the fear programming, which is aligned with the shadow side of the number 12, and instead align you with your heart center where when you're centered in your heart, there actually is no fear because you actually have the direct line to the divine. You feel exactly in tune with who you truly are, a divine being of light. So Uranus trying this new moon enhances these positive, exciting discoveries, very stimulating situations, stimulating relationships and encounters with others. So since Uranus governs the higher mind, the inspirational mind, your awareness to something greater, right, and also that you have a greater journey is very powerful as well. So you'll notice increased intuition and your ability to trust that intuition will be enhanced as well. And that brings wonderful downloads and flashes of insights and a lot more self-confidence as a result. So you're owning who you are as an individual and as a, a participant in this collective awakening that we are in. So the personal freedom message is absolutely huge. To start the year this way means that freedom is one of the key frequencies in 2022. Now, in my ultimate yearly forecast, which I hosted in December, which you can watch the replay for on my website, tanyagabrielle.com, I revealed that we are actually entering the year of resonance. And that's because resonance is aligned to discovering that everything or all we need to do is resonate to the frequency of our choice, as opposed to imposing the ego and asking for certain results to go the way we want to, because we don't know what's for our highest good. The ego doesn't. The ego thinks it does, right? But really all we need to do is to resonate to the frequency that we want to resonate to. So we, that's why being very keenly aware of numbers as they show up or 
any synchronicities in your life, they activate that intuitive heart-centered part of you and allow you to make very easy changes because when you surrender to the fact that the universe will supply what you need as long as you resonate with it first, everything flows. And so this is exciting that the planet of change and innovation and also the planet, and I'm talking about Uranus now, the planet that rules Aquarius and the new age that we're entering is so prevalent right as we begin the new year. Now, this new moon also creates a wide conjunction to Venus. It's about 10 degrees apart. And Venus is in retrograde and conjunct Pluto for several weeks. And that signifies a very deep transformation regarding really anything like things that we haven't seen coming to the surface with Pluto uh, affecting us very personally. Venus is a personal planet. And also everything regarding love, intimate relationships, what we value, like which beliefs we choose to align with. And all of that is being purged because Pluto empowers through us letting go in every moment. So there's a very big intensity as well, very personal one regarding our relationships and our relationship to abundance as well, because Venus governs pleasure and abundance. Now, the last transit I want to mention doesn't involve the new moon. It involves two other planets. Mars is sextile to Saturn. Saturn rules Capricorn, so this is an important one. And Saturn and Mars, when they get together in this harmonious way, there is a strong surge of energy. And the energy is, the Mars energy is being used to remind you of your responsibilities. And it gives you tremendous powers of concentration and perseverance. So this transit is helping you step out of the victim mode and into I am a living example of the life that I wish to see around me. So you're taking your life seriously. You're taking your divine mission seriously because Saturn represents the career side of things. And if you're dating, it's a great time to commit. You have tremendous patience and discipline and dedication with this transit. And that is also beginning our year because it's part of this Capricorn new moon on January 2nd. So if we apply this in terms of governments and institutions, it's important for all of us to stand for what it is that we want to see in the world. This is another interpretation of Capricorn and getting on the other side of the number 12 degrees, not the victim shadow side. So it's not a time to abdicate our power. It's time to stand for something, but that doesn't mean we fight. It doesn't mean we take sides. And this is where we move now from the old paradigm into the new one where there is no, like, you know, I'm on this side, you're on that side, I'm right, you're wrong. It's not to fight against something. It's just to stand for something that you want to create and focus on creating that, right? So you want to start living the energy you want to see. If you start fighting the energy that you don't like, you've actually joined that energy. You're not rising above it whatsoever. You need to live in the energy that you want to see as if it was your reality already. And that's how the energy will come to be. 
So it's really, really important in the message of this Capricorn new moon, really the main message is for you to start listening to the key themes in your life that are high vibrational that you want to partake in, those frequencies, and be a living example of those. And also not to judge people, not to go down vibrationally and judge people. Know that everybody's doing the best they can based on the programs that they're currently running. So they are choosing to have certain experiences and we can't judge those experiences. It's it's not for us to be the judge of others, right? So saying that somebody's wrong or not doing the right thing or they're on the wrong side is really partaking again in that old paradigm where it's one side versus the other. So it keeps you in that loop. And, and in order to step out of the loop, you need to choose a frequency and just keep staying on that frequency throughout the day. You know, check in. Am I in fear programming? Is fear uh, deciding how I respond or do something? Or am I feeling the frequency of joy, for example? So this is the time to rise above it. And Capricorn takes responsibility for that. It creates a different kind of reality, and and the reality that you want to create, hopefully, is very high vibrational, and then that creates the process of ascension, because you're transcending the old paradigm now of judgment. And as we move into February, when we have that major Pluto return for the U.S., that is really going to be a culmination between mid-end February until the equinox in March there's going to be uh, really a culmination effect of this energy. And so we want to be very aware of when our programming shows up and that it shows up in our mind and that when we connect to our heart, we connect to the divine, to the multidimensional that Uranus also represents, that Aquarius represents, the true divine part of who we really are. It is not limited. There is no limitation there. The heart understands that abundance is infinite. So when you're standing in that place of tremendous courage, you're standing in your heart-centered space. There are no fear programs there, and there is no judgment there. So if you want to be happy, then feel happy right now. If you want to feel abundant, then go and feel abundant. That's really how easy it is. It's not that difficult. We make it difficult because we are in that old paradigm of fear. Like, I'm not going to be able to do it. Or there's old programming that's telling you you can't. But you can. And that's what we're transcending now. So moving back into that heart-centered space is going to be really imperative as you as you have the courage to step into the unknown, which Uranus represents. And the next lunation in January on the 17th will be the Cancer full moon, which is very heart-centered because the moon, our feelings, is the ruler of Cancer. So we're really being asked to move in that direction like full-time now. So keep coming back to the frequencies that you would like to see reflected in your life and keep coming back to the frequencies that you'd like to see reflected in the world around you. And that way you can be that beacon of light in 
the chaos, right, in the darkness. And that's truly what this first new moon in Capricorn is sharing with you, is to choose freedom and liberation from fear, stand in your light, and be the messenger of light and love. Be the messenger of joy and compassion and gratitude. All those lovely frequencies that we have at our disposal at any time. So tune into those things that lift you up, that make you smile. Have a way to access those when you're feeling down or feeling overwhelmed, which of course happens, right? So we have these resources that can easily take us out of those emotional moods or mental, you know, uh, frustrations. And they're, they're there. We just have to have a plan, like have to have known. And Capricorn helps with planning, right? Know where you need to turn when you're feeling a little low. Have something that you can turn to that immediately will put a smile on your face and just relax your heart, right? And take you out of the mind because the mind is where the fear programs are. And those fear programs with Uranus starting off the year are being addressed now. So if you move into decision-making processes that are based on fear or connections to others emotionally that are, that are, that are coming from a sense of, I'm afraid if this person doesn't do this, right? So there's, there's many different ways we activate fear. Then we will be really confronted now because we're meant to release that. We're meant to be liberated from that. So have your way of accessing joy and put a smile to your face because laughing and, and smiling is an instant way to move out of fear because it moves you directly into your heart. There's nothing to think about. It's just a feeling of joy. So move into that place and remember you are a beacon of light. And we're all coming together now and lighting up the world with that joy, that love, that compassion. So have an amazing new moon in Capricorn. And remember your own star code blueprint. It is amazing. It shows you the light being that you are, your gifts, your destiny, your life purpose. And you can discover yours in a free masterclass at starcodeclass.com. So enjoy that and enjoy how it helps you understand the people in your life as well. All you need is your birthday. And if you want to do the astrology part, you'll need your birth time and birthplace. So enjoy that class at starcodeclass.com and have a wonderful Capricorn new moon on January 2nd. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye for now. Happy New Year. Okay, that was wonderful. So we're going to take a little break. And Merry Christmas, everyone. Um, perseverance comes to mind, determination, persistence, these kinds of um, energies to uh, stay in the power of that positive thought. While these ugly ducklings take their leave, 
quite unwillingly, yet we we have the power of love. And so we will have a little conversation with a more intimate setting in terms of a smaller group of us, and Ram is going to give us the phone number. Uh, 720-716-7301. The pin code. 353-863-POUND. Okay. So, and then we will spend the hour together there. <clears throat> we'll be returning at the top of the following hour uh, to BBS Radio, Station 2. Best radio in the universe. <laughs> okay, everyone, see you there. Namaste and peace out for the moment. What happened? <laughs> Where did it go? <laughs> Hold on, everybody. I got to get back there. It disappeared the on electrons. me. Electrons. The electrons, yes. Okay, uh, right, whoops. Um, honoring operatic bass baritone Justin Diaz, Motown founder, songwriter, producer, and director Barry Gordy, Saturday Night Live creator Lorna Michaels, legendary stage and screen icon Bette Midler, and singer-songwriter Joni Mitchell. So let's get started, right? The 34 Kennedy Center Honors, honoring modern music icon, Joni Mitchell. Emmy winning producer and writer, Lauren Michaels. The love entertainer and humanitarian, Ben Miller. Internationally renowned opera superstar, Justino Diaz. Songwriter, producer, and director, Barry Gordy. And now, from the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts in Washington, D.C. Please welcome Kennedy Center honoree, David Letterman. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 44th Annual Kennedy Center Honors. I am Dave. You folks, of course, know me from TikTok. <laughs> this year, perhaps more than ever, we have come to fully appreciate the importance of the performing arts in our lives. For the first time since 2019, we're back to share this experience together in this unbelievably delightful, magnificent opera house as we celebrate tonight's honorees and mark the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy Center. I would like to add that tonight it is quite nice to see the presidential box once again being occupied. Same with the Oval Office. <laughs> this night is about the honorees whose unique gifts cross all boundaries and represent all parties from the left 
to the far left. <laughs> President Kennedy said, it's not the victories or defeats in the battle of politics for which we will be remembered, but for our contribution to the human spirit. And the artistic contributions of our honorees are unbelievably astounding. Please join me in congratulating our honorees. Our honorees that do not have to do anything, well, other than today's 5K fun run. <laughs> so please, sit back, relax, as your friends and our guest performers say publicly all the glowing things you already believe about yourselves. <laughs> now to honor Joni Mitchell, here's music journalist, writer, producer, director, two-time Academy Award winner, and multiple-time Sexiest Man of the Year runner-up, Cameron Crowe. All of Joni's recordings come directly from her heart. For any mood or emotional crossroad where you might find yourself, there's a Joni Mitchell song, words, and music, that will meet you there. She bears her soul like a close friend, in the most courageous of ways, making her impervious to definition or comparison. To understand the unique artists behind some of these masterpieces that endure, in American folk, pop, rock, jazz, all music canons, we must look at where her passion for art began. So here's Joni's story, told by Graham Nash, Accompanied by her music, performed by Nora Jones. Hers was a happy childhood in Saskatchewan, made blissful by a talent for drawing and melodies that were all her own. But at the age of nine, Joni's life was transformed by polio. Her convalescence awakened a profound artistic intelligence within her. So when a prophetic English teacher told Joni, if you can paint with a brush, you can paint with words, she began her journey to the burgeoning stages of folk music. Joni's crystalline soprano was set to a gingerly plucked guitar that she tuned her own way, creating a new ethereal sound. And at just 23, with an old soul wisdom, she put pen to paper and took us on a child's passage into adulthood. Considered to be one of the greatest albums of all time. Everywhere. 
Commercials. Okay, get to the. and specificity of detail like she was right back there, frozen in time in her childhood bedroom in Canada. Oh, Canada. <laughs> Through my mom, Joni Mitchell now lives in my blood, too, like holy wine, inspiring not only my desire to write, but also the kinds of things I want to write about. Her voice, her words, her art, will continue to shift the air for generations, encouraging us to feel more deeply, to love more sweetly, and to think more freely. To celebrate the album that has changed so many of us for the better, performing River, Joni's friend and mine, Brandy Carlisle. Thank you. 
Kevin Michaels, the producer of Saturday Night. We don't go on because it's ready. We go on because it's 11.30. He's this Canadian guy. Ringmaster, the puppet master. He's been gullified, sanctified. He is Saturday Night Live. People don't know this about Lauren, but he was in a comedy troupe. So Lauren was a performer. And we give you notes. We give you notes as a performer. Lauren did make a show that revolved around his personal life. He was going to start work before noon. He'd have a nice breakfast. Then come into work. And then a little bit of a meeting or two. And then go to dinner. And then maybe then you start to do the comedy. He's created something that existed. An iconic cultural institution. It's like as if he created Yale or NASA. He was sort of the businessman. And, and has that droll kind of live delivery. I think that made the show even cooler. Okay, Lauren, be honest. What did you think? I hate it. Okay, now don't be honest. I thought it was great. Lauren's incredibly involved in the show. Every decision from what sketches get picked, sets, performance notes. Who's that chick that has a in between commercials? writers as much as performers. He has impeccable taste, whether he's choosing a musical guest or discovering new talent or just choosing between the smarter of two fart jokes. It's very hard to make that choice about what's right and what's funny. Lauren is the one that really pushes you to find something that's both. If you get into the Lauren Michaels world, your life will change. You'll never be the same because he sees things in you that you don't get. But yeah, I mean, that's my coach. Still has the creative energy. I know that he still loves the show. of hundreds of iconic characters, characters like Mary Catherine Gallagher that inspired us, made us laugh, and gave us an excuse to sniff our armpits in public. <laughs> Just me. <laughs> uh, the looks of these characters, their voices, costumes, and especially their catchphrases remind us what SNL has given to all of us for decades. Yeah. And by decades, I mean groups of 10 years. <laughs> We just both wanted to take this opportunity to thank you, Lauren, for everything you've done for us as Americans, as comedians, as 12-year-old misfits, and as friends. Yes, and I think it's safe to say without you, Lauren, there's a good chance we would be living in a van down by the river. <laughs> Lauren, we love you. We love you. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. 
for cast members to break new characters, and for people who don't watch the news to find out what's going on in the world. Uh, you know, whatever people used to say to me, I get my news from Weekend Update, I would always respond, oh, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> but now, considering some of the other options out there, I say... Go for it. I mean, at least update his proofread. <laughs> when SNL premiered on October 11th, 1975, the idea of a parody newscast wasn't a new one. But as with every idea, it's all in the execution. So when Chevy Chase sat behind the desk and announced that the post office is going to issue a stamp commemorating prostitution in the United States, it's a 10-cent stamp, but if you want to lick it, it's a quarter. <laughs> get a laugh. He launched an institution. Hello, weekend update with Chevy Chase. Good evening. I'm Chevy Chase, and you're not. Good evening, I'm Dan Aykroyd. And I'm Jane Curtin. Please welcome Mr. Bill Murray. We're going to be doing the hard news this year. Thank you, folks. Good evening. I'm Ron McDonald, and this is the news. Well, I'm Colin Quinn. Here are tonight's top stories. Here are tonight's top stories. Here are tonight's top stories. Welcome to Weekend Update. I'm Michael Che. I'm Colin Jeff. Weekend Update with Kevin Nealon. Tonight's top stories. The state of Washington, D.C., Saturday Night Live creator Lauren Michaels, who shall remain nameless, <laughs> was presented with a Kennedy Center honor in recognition of his incredibly generous contribution. <laughs> to American culture. Notably absent from the tribute was the most popular original cast member, Cocaine. But what a thrill it must be for Lorne to be lumped in at the very last minute. With these other very worthy honorees tonight. You are in good company, my friend. And between you and me, I really hope it's you that wins tonight. But my money is actually on bet. In all sincerity, Lauren, congratulations on your Kennedy Center honor and for giving me the job of a lifetime. If it weren't for you letting me go on SNL, I never would have gotten that lucrative blood thinner commercial. So thank you, Lauren Michaels, and thank you, Big Pharma. for almost 50 years, and he's still passionate about it. One of the parts of the show that Lorne gets most excited about are the political impressions. Uh, they take on a life of their own. 
Basically, if you're in politics and you screwed up, we've got someone who looks or sounds like you, you're going to be on the show. (laughs) And if you screwed up and we don't have someone who looks or sounds like you, I get to play you. Ever since the cold open of the fourth episode, when Chevy Chase played bumbling president Gerald Ford, political impressions have been a hallmark of Saturday Night Live. Ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. Ford's popularity is certainly on a sharp rise here.
that you get invited to Washington, D.C. to talk about your boss in front of the President of the United States. <laughs> At least not under oath, that is. Um, <laughs> but if you can find a job where that might even remotely happen, take it. <laughs> Don't ask questions. Just sign up. That's the kind of job that Lauren has given me. He took a kid from the south side of Atlanta, and he turned him into the longest-running sketch performer on The Greatest Show on Television. He allows all of us to freedom to explore ideas that we think are funny, and the time to develop our characters and ourselves as artists. Lauren, having you by my side has been priceless. I'm getting the clip. I can't thank you, but I want to thank you more than you'll ever know. And to our other honorees tonight, congratulations on your honors. Bet, give me a call. Good evening, welcome to the I'm Michael Che. I'm Colin Jost. Well, it was... It was a lot easier for the other update anchors to make jokes about Lauren. Uh, he's not their current boss. <laughs> this is so nerve-wracking. I haven't been here in D.C. since January 6th. It's, <laughs> it's not what you think. It's not what you think. I needed a new laptop. I got it, man. It's intimidating doing jokes in front of President Biden. I keep having to remind myself that there's no way he's still awake right now. <laughs> Lauren has been nominated for the Emmys a record 94 times, and he's won the Emmy 20 times, which also means Lauren has lost the Emmy a humiliating 74 times. John Lennon once said that he and Paul McCartney were watching SNL together in 1976 when Lauren made his offer for the Beatles to reunite for $3,000, and they considered going down to 30 Rock but decided not to because they were tired. <laughs> Which really just goes to show that even the biggest rock stars of all time fall asleep after update. Motown Records founder Barry Gordy is also being honored tonight. And you know for decades, Motown Records was the highest earning African-American business. Then the CIA invented crack. Oh, my God. I'm glad he told that one. <laughs> Lauren, you are the best and really only boss I've ever had. <laughs> And as I've said to you occasionally in a vague, but I hope meaningful way, thank you for everything. For Weekend Update, I'm Colin Jost. And I'm Michael Shea. Congratulations, Lauren. place to do comedy. It's the first time I've ever told a joke and thought, gee, I hope the Undersecretary of Labor thought that was funny. <laughs> For almost 25 years, Lorne Michaels has guided my career. Well, let's focus on his accomplishments instead. I think the term genius is overused, but in Lorne's case, 
He said it was okay. Moore <laughs> never wanted Saturday Night Live to be easily defined. He wanted to keep it evolving and changing with the times and the taste of the viewers. And that evolution can be best charted with the musical guests that he chooses to appear each week. Through the years, some of the biggest names in rock and roll and pop artists who are just about to set the charts on fire all accepted his invitation to perform. Name the hottest act and you'd find them on Saturday night. From the Rolling Stones to Tina Turner, Foo Fighters, Prince, David Bowie, Lady Gaga, Ray Charles, Billie Eilish, Miley Cyrus, Bruno Mars to Justin Timberlake. If you are music of the moment, you are on Saturday Night Live. Lauren, as a finale to your tribute, it's my pleasure to introduce an artist who was there at the very beginning. He's a music legend. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Kennedy Center honoree, Paul Sun.
funny, smart, passionate, insanely talented Bette Midler. So the world knows Bette as a superstar, and which you are. But I watched Bette from the very beginning, and she is a superpower goddess to me. I bow down to you, Bette, and your super uh, powerness, and your super goddessness, and your uh, ever-ready batteriness. Yeah, that's because that's who you are. So we're all faced with rejection. But Bette did not pay any attention to rejection. When show business didn't know what to do with her, she created her own show. She sang, she danced, she shook her assets. <laughs> she created the divine Miss M. She produced her own act and eventually her own movies and TV projects. Nothing stops that. She also produced a beautiful family, which speaks volumes about her and what amazing human being she is and a beautiful mother. There is no one like our Beth. She is one of a kind. And now there's a story told by another one of her friends, who also is one of her biggest fans, Adele. Thank you. 
as electrifying as seeing Bette Midler performing live on stage in front of a New York audience. We New Yorkers love her, and we know that she loves us, not just because she gives 100% in every performance, but for her dedication off stage. In 1995, Bette founded the New York Restoration Project, a nonprofit committed to cleaning and greening the city's parks and gardens, as well as educating students about environmental justice. New Yorkers love our Broadway Bette, whose most recent Tony Award win was for her glorious performance in the revival of Hello, Dolly, Bette it is my great pleasure to introduce some of your friends from that production. Please welcome Beanie Feldstein, Kate Baldwin, and Taylor Trench.
We're thankful for our friends at Viacom CBS for making this event possible, as well as everyone here tonight and the millions of viewers at home. Thank you for your support of the arts. My young lady singing idol was Jackie Wilson. I bought every one of his records as soon as it came out. I would look on the label to see who wrote the songs. The name that came up again and again was Barry Gordy. I was thrilled when my group and I got an audition for Jackie's managers. We sang five songs that I had written. We were crushed when they rejected us. <laughs> but by the grace of God, Barry Gordy was there that day with some new songs for Jackie. He approached me and said he liked a couple of my songs. Now keep in mind, I was 17, and he had just written the first five hits for my singing idol. Barry signed us to a management contract and began mentoring me on my songwriting, and we became best friends. About a year or so later, he borrowed $800 from his family's fund and started Motown. Here's how it began, as told by another entrepreneur, who is also a Kennedy Center honoree, Ms. Oprah Winfrey. Barry Gordy once said, a song's got to get him in the first 10 seconds. The Motown sound hooked us all right and held on tight for 62 years and counting. Because the way he saw it, his job was to develop talent and then stand behind them 
and let them soar. Mercury made musical and network television history by uniting Diana Ross and the Supremes and the Temptations in a special called TCB, or Take Care of Business. And it did. It was America's very first primetime TV special produced, hosted by, and starring black artists. And it was sensational. That historic television event is depicted eight times a week in the smash hit Tony Award winning Broadway musical, Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of the Temptations.
visionary leadership, so many Motown artists reached places we never dared to dream about. We were just kids who came from singing in churches and on street corners to performing all over the world. One of those young singers auditioned for Barry when he was just 11 years old. Barry said, your singing is average, but you played out Monica really good. That average singer was little Stevie Wonder.
Reconnect with the arts. Reconnect with travel. Delta is proud to be the official airline of the Kennedy Center Honors. Delta, keep climbing. It's been a wonderful night here for the Kennedy Center Honors. And uh, once again, congratulations to all of the honorees. And, and now uh, we're going to say goodnight. Please welcome back Kennedy Center honoree Stevie Wonder. Center in Salt Lake City, Utah. 
With a choir, it has performed its annual Christmas concert for the past 20 years. Every December, on three consecutive nights, over 60,000 people course through these lobbies, eager for the celebration that has aired on national television since 2004. But at the moment, the world is not gathering for live events. So this magnificent building is dark and empty. Or is it? If these walls could talk, what would they tell us about Christmas concerts of the past? What music, images, stories would they recall? What moments would we remember with the choir, the, the orchestra, the bells, the herald trumpets, the dancers, and the guest artists who have joined? We invite you to help us answer that question as we let these walls speak to us, sing to us, and tell us about the joy that music brings into the world at Christmas time when heaven and nature sing.
Oh, Christmas, Christmas, you are the one star. 
So I grew up in the late 1970s, and most of the music I heard back then was on 8-track tapes. Who here remembers 8-tracks? Show of hands. Let me see. One, two, this will just take a second. Three, okay. My favorite 8-track was John Denver's Greatest Hits. And my absolute favorite song was Sunshine on My Shoulders. Now, whenever I hear it, I'm immediately back in that wood-paneled living room, playing on the shag carpet with my Donnie and Marie dolls. The song really is a wish. It expresses a hope that we might share the warmth and joy inside each of us with everyone around us. And for me, that sounds pretty much like a Christmas song, doesn't it? My mom loved John Denver. His music simply made her feel good. And I really wish that she could be here tonight. But she passed away a few years ago. So as I sing this next song for you, I would also very much like to sing it for her.
gentlemen, Christmas is a time of music and singing, and not just listening. So for the first time in, well, as long as I can remember, we'd like to invite you to sing with us. The song, as you can tell, Jingle Bells, and we need all the Christmas spirit you've got. Now, in a hall as big as this one, the trick will be to listen with your eyes. So watch me, because with 21,000 of us, it's the only way we'll stay together. Oh, one other thing. At the beginning of the chorus, every time you sing the word oh, pay special attention, because each time it will be a little different and a little longer. There are the sleigh bells. I think we're almost ready. Fire, are we ready? Here we go.
Brothers welcome acclaimed film and television actor Hugh Bonneville. Thank you. Thank you so much. How can you possibly top that? Let's hear it again for Richard and the drummers. That was amazing. spectacular drawing room you have here. I've known some grand houses in my time, but this place makes Downton Abbey look like a tool shed. <laughs> I just want to reiterate what my new best buddy, Sutton Foster, said, that it really is a, it's a treat for me to be here with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and Orchestra at Temple Square. Are they magnificent? Let's hear it for them too, please. Yeah, frankly, I thought I'd find this whole experience rather overwhelming, but now I realise it's just us. It's uh, you and me and 21,000 of our closest friends. So that's all tickety-boo. <laughs> tickety-boo, it's an English phrase. It means sort of fine and dandy, so you can just put that in your stocking for Christmas, okay? That one, tickety-boo. It's not tickety-boo. So really, basically, what I want to say is thank you so much for having me. Now, Christmas is, of course, a time for celebrating new birth. It's a time for family forgiving, and in my house anyway, we always raise a toast to absent friends, to those we have lost, and we share stories about them, bringing them back to life in our memory, and the account I want to share with you this Christmas season is just such a story, it's about a family who in the darkest moments of life found the hope and peace we associate with this season, the true spirit of Christmas, how it transformed them and also has blessed this world. Goodwill. 
And goodwill is what they needed. Two years earlier, the great Chicago fire had all but destroyed Horatio's business interests. So this journey was intended to restore hope and bring healing into their lives. Once on board the ship on the evening of November the 22nd, Anna and her girls knelt down, said their prayers, and fell asleep, dreaming of the Yuletide festivities to come. But at about two o'clock in the morning, they were suddenly jolted awake in their berths. Despite a clear, starry sky, the Ville de Havre had inexplicably collided with the Loch Hur, an iron-hulled Scottish clipper. Lifeboats quickly filled with people. Many passengers leapt into the icy waters. Anna tried desperately to keep her children together, but the two elders became separated in the confusion. Just twelve minutes after the impact, a wave washed over the deck, and Anna was drawn under together with her two youngest daughters. She held on to five-year-old Bessie until her strength gave out. Her last memory was of two-year-old Tanetta in her lace nightgown, torn from her grasp, getting smaller and smaller until she too finally disappeared. The crew of the locker and found Anna unconscious, floating on a wooden plank. When the ship docked in Wales, Anna sent a telegram to her husband. It read, Saved alone. What shall I do? Horatio immediately sailed from New York. He wrote to a friend, there is just one thing in these days that has become magnificently clear. I must not lose faith. Four days into his voyage, on a Thursday evening, the captain summoned Mr. Spafford to the foredeck. By the crew's calculations, they were nearing the very place where Anna's ship had gone down, taking with it their four daughters. Now, resting some three miles below. But Horatio refused to look down. I did not think of our dear ones there, he later recounted. Instead, he gazed out across the rolling waves and up into moonlit sky. There and then, he began to formulate a simple expression of his faith. A verse that would become a hymn. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way. When sorrows, like sea billows, roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. Only a few weeks earlier, in the same place on the open sea, Anna 
had experienced a similar awakening. After her rescue, when she'd regained consciousness, she was overcome with despair and simply wanted to throw herself back into the ocean. What was life worth now? What could it ever be without her children? But then, it was as if she heard a voice in her mind and her heart. You are spared for a purpose, Anna. You have a work to do. in which he found himself. Anna gave birth to a boy and then a girl. But sorrow upon sorrow, that son, Horatio Jr., succumbed to scarlet fever at the age of three. Then, a year later, another daughter was born. Only two of their seven children lived to maturity. But the Spaffords never yielded hope. Anna found the strength to move forward, 
and to turn outward, to continue the work she and her husband had begun. And the seed of service which they planted bore sweet fruit indeed. In time, their daughter Bertha expanded the Spafford's humanitarian work with the simple intent of rescuing those who had experienced the shipwrecks of life as they had. During World War I, she led the way in organizing soup kitchens for refugees. She also oversaw hospitals for wounded soldiers on all sides of the conflict. One Christmas Eve, on her way to Bethlehem, Bertha met a Bedouin man, his ailing wife, and their newborn son traveling to Jerusalem by donkey. Later, Bertha wrote, Here stood before me a rustic Madonna and babe, and similar to Mary's plight, there was no place for them to stay. By the next morning, the mother had died, and Bertha was asked to take care of the child. She agreed. She named the little boy Noel. And within the week, she had taken in two more orphaned babies. And so began the Spafford family's most enduring charitable work, a hospital for children. She explained, we make no distinction in nationality or creed, the only requirement being that people absolutely need our help. And some of the Spafford's charitable work continues to this day in the children's centre that bears the family name. universal message. Horatio's words echo with the story of Christmas. A child was born in Bethlehem, bringing peace on earth and goodwill toward men. Because of him and through his example, the human spirit can rise above tragedy. Whenever However, we suffer our own night of sorrow. God's love does shine in the darkness. Hope can heal the wounded soul. And the Christmas work of giving, of loving, serving, and of rescuing is ours if we choose to make it so. And as we do, we join with saints and angels to rejoice and sing. It is well 
came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day, in the city of David, a Saviour, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, good will toward men. Angels from the realms of glory, wing your fire over the earth. Ye who sing creation's story, now proclaim Messiah's birth.
my. Okay, well, Penny has a song or two just for encores. So Rama's going to play a little bit here. And we got Rainbird to call on in a moment. And yeah, that one. That one, Rama. Okay. Here we go. Um. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. With all of the songs in our hearts from tonight, I want to uh, thank everyone for the work that we do together. Good job, everyone. And I'm going to pass this talking stick to our sister, faithfully showing the grace and the goodness that we all are made of every closing night. And here it comes with all the goodies, angels, fairies, feathers, rainbows, crystals, hobbits, menahunis, and elves and dwarfs. I think I got them all. Here it comes, Rainbird. Okay, I got it. <laughs> it feels pretty loaded. <laughs> and I want to say uh, happy Kwanzaa. It's Kwanzaa here now. <laughs> oh, right. Wow. And, and there too, probably, right? Oh, in 222, we're going to go into all those twos coming up this new year. What a beautiful day. It was just glorious. So thank you. Thank you, thank you for everything that you prayed and just the richness of it and just like it always is. So, <laughs> Whoops. Uh-oh. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Rainbird went to the next level. <laughs> Well, I will just pass the talking stick back to Rama. He's got some words of wisdom, and he'll tell us what what's the title of this one, Rama. Uh, this is Alan Watts. Um, Ecstasy of Life. Okay, that sounds appropriate for tonight. We see, don't we, all that we experience is understandable as a spectrum of vibrations. There are different kinds of spectra. There's the spectrum of light, there's the spectrum of sound. We can also think of spectra of smells, of tactile feelings, of emotions, and so on, all down the line. We are, as it were, living in the midst of a woven tapestry of many dimensions in which the warps and the woofs are all these different spectra of various kinds of vibrations. And as on the loom, the warp crosses the woof, and if you didn't have one, you wouldn't have the other, 
It takes two to reveal the pattern. So see yourselves as patterns in a weaving system. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for the interlocking of all these different spectra. So then, here they go, and these things are vibrating. Now, when it reaches a certain point, you say, oh, that's too much. When it reaches another point, you say, it's not enough. Why, there's nothing here. I don't feel a thing. No, I'm going to go to sleep. But on the other end, you say, no, 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 you're going far enough. If you go any further, that's going to tear things apart. I can't withhold this tension, see? Now, so some people will say, all right, now, now relax, 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 take it easy, take it easy. But often you see the point is you can't do that. So then, what I will say to the person who cannot relax, I will stress his tension. Go the other way. In other words, go with the line of least resistance. Say, okay, you're tense about all this. Now let's say, really tense. Let's scream, no, 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 no. See, you get violent inside. This is not to happen. See? But so that one way or the other, see, it doesn't matter which you go, you begin to get into this thing. Which is what is happening when the boat of life begins really to rock. Get rocking with it by whatever way is open. But you are not going to force the issue here. Instead of saying to you, you should be doing it another way than you're doing it. I would be saying, now find out the way you must do it. And go that way. Now this is a general principle of an art. And we will find there is a kind of, uh, there are limits to this art and uh, how it can be used and so forth. But once the general principles are clear, there aren't many serious problems left. But if you begin to look at it in that way, you will begin to realize that ecstasy by one road or another is inevitable. That indeed ecstasy is in a way the nature of existence. There is a universe for the simple reason that it's ecstatic. What else is all this fireworks about? It, it is just like music in this ecstatic thing going off. And you have to be a certainly careful in a little way here that any initiation into a deep wisdom is apt at first to demotivate you. You think, what the hell am I doing? Now all these projects building this up and that up or doing something to save the world or so on and so forth. Oh, why? That whole thing is nonsense. Yes. <laughs> Tell us what this is, Marla. Um, this our daily dose of love. I hope this day <clears throat> be every day 
make life a song, and let's sing it. Ditto. <laughs> Sada, Rava. Tatam Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil. Live long and prosper. Immortality. Namaste, everyone. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. See you in the light. Namaste. Aloha.